This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here along with, of course, Terry South and the new Becca Hurley. I don't know how much you weren't new because last week you were on the entire time I wasn't here. That's true. Yeah. Becca Hurley's Trial her by name. fire. And uh, Jeffrey Liam Simpson is now on another uh, – he's been given another pursuit. They've moved him to another pasture at BYU Broadcasting. And I leave for one week, and the next thing I know, Jeff's just gone. I don't know what it is. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I guess I have to go listen to the audio from last week. I, uh, I I was told he's managing the office Nerf dart arsenal. Oh, okay. So he's kind yeah. of a quartermaster when it comes to our darts in the office. So. <laughs> Thank well, goodness, because it's so disorganized. It right is. Now. Probably oh, not a great idea. <laughs> I have a feeling someone's going to lose an eye soon. But it's it's fun to have Becca with us. Becca has family from uh, that are professional clowns. That's right. They call her Teaspoon. Mm-hmm. That's her clown name. This is awesome. It really is. I've it's never so had fun. a clown. I mean, I've never had an actual clown wow. running I mean, the board. Jeff. Yeah, but he wasn't like card carrying clown. Right. Like you carry a card. I do. Yeah. And a pocket full of balloons. Mm-hmm. Always. Which is uh, handy. It's good to have you, Becca. So this is um, this is fun. By the way, we're today we're going to be talking about how to better manage your stress at work. Which I'm feeling so relaxed. I think I've just I've been I'm well slept. Mm. I got some sunlight for a week. It's nice. It does a body good. It's like milk. And uh, and I hadn't seen Terry for a while, too. And he apparently still has his family. Yep. He went on a family trip. We went through the airport <clears throat> twice. Wow. It was great. So baby strollers and uh, car seats, all that kind of stuff, too, with yeah, the kids. Yeah, that's always so fun. Adds an extra. We actually, uh, for about... Maybe a 10, 15 second period. We left my uh, one year old baby girl at the TSA. I just I, I pushed the cart aside so we could take off our shoes and deal yeah, with yeah. the carry ons and stuff. And then we start moving through security. And the guy goes, How many is in your party? And I went, Four. And he goes, One, two. And I turned around like, Whoa, the baby. And like everyone laughs because I just realized that I left my child about five feet behind me. But she's right there just hanging she's out. She's fine. Yeah. What's the worst thing that could happen at fine. a TSA stop? Nothing. So everyone Nothing. just watched the child and then we, you know, oh, fiddled that's with all cute. that. Yeah. There you go. And everyone's happy. Lack of parenting skills on display. Yeah. But... Well, the airport's a hard thing. Yeah. Sometimes son, you leave my, your belt. My son was like, I had to take off my shoes. Let's do this. And he's trying to do that. Well, he's got Velcro. No, he's learning to tie his shoes, so that just makes everything 10 minutes longer. So. <laughs> That's what we call Speaking the airport. Speaking of my child, yes. my wife was going over some records. Yeah. You, you know, what? what's the first word your child says? You kind of maybe document that. Yeah. So you Mama, that dad, dad. Yeah, what was his? You would think. Yeah. Not my child. What did he say? Because we're looking at my daughter. She's starting to try to yeah. say some words. We're trying to get she's her to- 12? Eh, she's 18 months. Okay. It's like, come on. Get a word out there. She can. She's having conversations with herself, all the babbling yeah. and stuff, but she yeah. isn't trying too much. Uh, but my uh, my son, we start looking, and his first word, mm-hmm. he had two phrases. One was "uh oh," no, no, no. It was "oh yeah, oh yeah." He go, "oh yeah," and then he says, "I'm Batman." Really? That was before mom or dad. Wow. 
That's crazy. Oh, yeah, and I'm Batman. Well, is he Batman? No, but he would say, like, I'm Batman. He'd say it just like that. And do you need any other phrases? I was well, like, yeah, I you think, do. I think I'm a good parent. You, you, need, you need the phrase. How about the famous phrase that every little kid yells, I'm done, like when they're on the right, toilet. Exactly. I think I'm Batman sounds like even better. Yeah. I know, but then you wouldn't know to go get it. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I think it's implied by the tone. <laughs> Apparently he said, I'm Batman before mom or dad. Wow. Yeah. How's he doing now? He's great. Is he Batman now? No. Okay. So that was useless. He wants to be Batman. Okay. We used to ask him, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he goes, Batman. And I went, all right. This is great. You need a little bit more, you know, uh, investment income there. But Does yeah. he have a Batman cape? Um, Mask, uh, costume, which are actually like pajamas. Yeah. And a costume, Halloween costume. So, yes, a cape. Okay. He so has batarangs. That's the king. That's one, that's one of the reasons that I, I wanted Jeff on the team originally is because he's the only guy that's ever come in with a cape on. Yeah. For his interview. That it, it, is, it is a quality way to make a statement. Uh, let's get to the rest of the headlines, Terry. What else should we be paying attention to? President Trump on Sunday lashed out at Russian and Iran, uh, Russia and Iran for backing animal Assad in, a, uh, Sir, uh, in Syria. Assad is the president yeah. of Syria. Following Assad? A, he called him a ba- animal Assad. That's how he refers to the wow. president of that country. In Syria, following a suspected chemical attack that killed dozens of civilians, many dead, including women and children, in mindless chemical attack in Syria. Chemicals and caps. That's how it goes on Twitter. Uh, singling out, Trump singles out Iran and Russian President Putin for their support of Syrian President Bashar Assad. Uh, big price to pay, open area immediately for medical help and verification, President Trump goes on. Uh, Syrian activists and medical workers say at least 40 people were killed Saturday in the chemical attack in the town of Duma, or Doma, the last rebel stronghold in Ghouta. This is all Scary. in, I think, southern Syria. Yeah. Um, and by the way, if those videos were real, unbelievable. Right. I mean... Just people horrible. dead. And, yeah. I mean, you're, they're, they're trying to treat those people as they're... Dealing with a, a chemical attack of some kind. Overnight, a missile attack on a Syrian airbase killed at least 14. Syria initially said that we did it, the United States. The Pentagon says we're, we didn't launch anything. Oh, no, we take credit. Russia is blaming Israel, so we're still just kind of pointing fingers and blaming everyone. President Trump loves to watch fiery debates erupt, particularly on Fox News. It appears the White House Chief of Staff, John Kelly, is using the president's love for discourse to get his attention on a daily basis by reporting are reportedly implementing a fun new game in the West Wing called Policy Time. So we have Executive Time, where the president gets on Twitter and doesn't have any appointments and just kind of putters around <laughs> watching you know, cable news. Yeah. And then he gets to work around 11. That was the story we got. At 11 Eastern, he gets finally to the, his office and takes some meetings. But now, during the meetings, they have Policy Time. And policy, that's where they argue and debate policy? As part of his restructuring of Trump's White House in an effort to make it run more smoothly, the Washington Post reported on Saturday that Kelly has organized a daily event in which advisors spar on an issue in front of the president. This takes place sometimes twice a day, according to the report. Trump's aides debate particular subjects, uh, subject matter in their uh, different viewpoints in front of him, seeming to help him make up his own, his own mind on how to proceed in governing. Wow. They give him the pro and con yeah. debate. He likes the That's the fight. interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of people, like President Clinton used to just study policy, and President Obama, they, they kind yeah. of were policy wonks. They kind of read the reports. And, and he just he just kind of wants like a little, almost like a debate off, and, and then Kind of a, pick Shakes- a, side. a Shakespearean approach. Yeah. A little play, a little I like acting. that. Yeah. That's what <laughs> I would do, too. 
Uh, I, I did read that there were multiple PowerPoint presentations to explain Amazon and the post office's relationship okay. and how Amazon pays the post office to ship its items, even though the president thinks that the post office is losing money for shipping Amazon's items. Items, But they're, Amazon's paying the price. So multiple that, PowerPoints that just didn't get through to the president yeah, no, on how it's this better, whole I think it's works. better to have a, a crew, mm-hmm. a cast. Okay. A troop? A, 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 troop, troop, a troop, yeah. <laughs> The policy troubadours. Wow. Ahead of Mr. Mark Zuckerberg's trip to Washington, uh, Facebook has hired a team from the law firm Wilmer Hale. Oh, boy. As well as outside consultants to coach him on question law, questions lawmakers may ask and how to place his answers and react if interrupted, according to people close to the uh, preparations who will speak only anonymously because you know, they were private yeah, sessions. Right. Facebook also has also set up mock hearings involving its communications team and outside advisors who role-play members of Congress. Internal staff has pushed Zuckerberg to answer lawmakers' questions directly and not to appear overly defensive. Their goal is to make Zuckerberg appear as humble, agreeable, and forthright. Yeah. Facebook Monday will begin alerting the 87 million users whose data may have been harvested by Cambridge Analytica. So keep watching Uh, Facebook. You might get a surprise. It's like the golden ticket. Yeah. But what could you do about it? Because what they're going to know is that you like these movies and these books and maybe you have a dog. Yeah. It's not like they have your credit card number. So it's almost like they're your neighbor. They actually get your credit card number from another data breach, but that's a different story. that's a different story. Finally, um, this one made me, uh, I don't know, I kind of had more positive thoughts after this story. Oh, good. That's about time. It was, you know, so we'll go into the Wall Street Journal story. For years, the big brands tried to go healthy as the main strategy to win back consumers who had defected to Greek-style yogurt and protein bars for, bre- bars for breakfast. Talking, talking right. big cereal companies. Yeah. Breakfast cereals. That didn't work. Overall, cereal sales in the U.S. have declined 11% over the past five years. Post recently brought back Oreo O's. Why? Because they taste good. They're just like <laughs> Oreos and milk. It's like having cookies for breakfast. General Mills revived its discontinued artificially colored and flavored Trix cereal last year after consumers complained about the dull look and different taste of the all-natural ingredients the company had used as substitutes. Jeez. <laughs> General Mills reported that sales, retail sales of its cereal rose 2% in the last quarter thanks to peanut butter chocolate, cheer- or chocolate Cheerios and Lucky Charms Frosted Flakes. Really? Kellogg discontinued its lower sugar frosted flakes and came out with the chocolate and cinnamon varieties. After working for years to remove the synthetic dyes and Lucky Charms marshmallows, General Mills has abandoned that goal and instead recently came out with a new unicorn-shaped marshmallow. Oh, wow. Really? So cereal went healthy. Yeah. And now they're like, wait, nobody wants healthy cereal, so they're revamping the sugar and artificial colors. Tricks are for adults. And then it says this is, uh, Mentel is a consumer research firm. They have found that 43% of adults eat cereal as a snack at home. 43% do, huh? Yeah. They go buy a box of cereal just so they can snack on it. Not that they have like milk and everything with it. They just grab it out of the box and eat it. Wow. See, I don't do that. I don't either. I like to just make it a morning thing if I ever do it. We, For some reason beyond me, my son has ended up with some Lucky Charms and some Captain Crunch, and I've eaten some of those. I'm like, these really taste gross. You mean Batman? Right, Batman. That's it. That's his secret identity. We have to, you Sorry. know. People aren't supposed to know about that. Can't tie that together. Oh, wow. So, yeah, cereal's back. Okay, man. good, good, good to know. And it's it's even healthier, but nobody likes it as much. No, they get rid of all the healthy. 
Yeah. It's full bore sugar now and full bore artificial well, color. Yeah, they started. Yeah, it was, they started healthy. Then it's they like tried. it doesn't look right. If people want healthy, you can just click like grape nuts or something. Well, try not to eat cereal, right? Yeah. It's kind of the same as like baked lays. I don't know how those sell. No. Ooh. You know? If no. you're going to go get chips, you should really get the – Get some chips. Get the chips. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. While you're at it. All right. Awesome. Good stuff. Thank you, Terry, for that. We're going to now take a break. And when we come back, we'll be talking about how to manage your anxiety at work, how to de-stress, you know, turn down the heat on your little boiler. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. The feeling of stress at work is like a pot on the stove that begins to boil. Everything is going okay until the water boils to high and everything starts flowing out, right? Overflowing, in fact. How can we better manage stress before we uh, reach our boiling point? Here to help us with that is Julian Humphreys. He is our uh, guest who's a leadership coach and um, and has spent a lot of time talking about this uh, the, the topic of anxiety, both with his clients and with organizations. He is the founder and editor-in-chief of Philosophy of Coaching, a biannual peer-reviewed open access academic journal serving the coaching community. And Julianne, we're excited to have you here. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me on. Talk about uh, this. You made a really interesting point in your article about the fact that um, once you start actually looking for anxiety at work, it's everywhere. You can see it in almost every aspect of, of work. Talk about that. Well, I do say that in, in that article. I say that it shows up for individuals uh, waking up at 4 a.m., uh, worrying about things that may may make sense and often don't make sense. It shows up on teams where anxiety about status and things like that means that people don't communicate as clearly as they could do. And it shows up in organizational structures where whole divisions or, or the ways that the organization is structured are uh, a result of certain anxieties that, that aren't getting resolved and aren't getting talked about. Do you think anxiety is it is it increasing? Is it is it newer uh, in the in the organizational world, corporate world, in our work life, or are we just paying more attention to it? Why is it becoming such a dominant theme? Well, I distinguish between anxiety, fear, and stress. And uh, stress is the kind of what you mentioned at the beginning when you're in a situation like I am right now on the radio where I may be kind of nervous. I may be worried that I'm going to say the wrong thing. And so, you know, my hands are sweaty or whatever it may be. It's a very sort of in the moment thing. Fear is when I know what I have to do, uh, but I don't particularly want to do it. Uh, You know, so I know that I have to make a sales call, but I don't really want to do it. So I I procrastinate. And anxiety is a more deep felt uh, sort of almost existential angst where you don't even really know what, you should be doing to address the, the, the threat that you're experiencing. And that kind of anxiety is way, way, way more common in the workplace these days because we're at a time where really nobody knows what the future looks like. Mm. Change of, uh, is, is so fast-paced, and you know, we don't even know if we're going to be in work 10 years from now or whether artificial intelligence is going to put us all out of work. There's just so many uh, things going on that we're kind of paralyzed and uncertain. You know, people talk about volatility, uncertainty, complexity, 
and ambiguity, VUCA. And that's the kind of thing that is incredibly anxiety-inducing when I talk about anxiety in in that latter sense. Um, In fact, plus it seems like with technology and more flex time, it seems like our work isn't just something we go do at our office. It's now something we carry with us 24-7. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we, we're, we can't turn it off. Our phones are buzzing at all hours of the day and night. And um, that in itself means that we don't get a break in the, in the same way that we used to. So as a, as a coach and um, somebody that is working with organizational leaders and just just leaders and managers and people, um, you suggest we figure out a way to make the anxiety work for us. What do, what do you mean by that? How do I take this nervousness or this anxiety and actually start turning it into something more valuable? So anxiety is kind of inevitable. I think if, if, if we experience no anxiety at all, we'd all be sitting on a mountaintop uh, meditating um, and, and not doing that much. So it's not that anxiety is bad. We have, uh, you know, it's inbuilt into us and we want to do various things as a result of, of certain anxieties. Um, the, the question is, are we uh, being anxious in a way that actually serves our long-term goals and purposes? Or are we being anxious where we're not really resolving any of, of the sort of bigger questions? We're just kind of acting out of anxiety in, in the moment. And uh, the the, the way that I address that with the leaders is, is I open up a conversation about anxiety and I say, you know, uh, first, firstly, often leaders will come and they'll say, I need to do this, I need to do that, I have to do the other. And that's all coming from a very kind of anxious place. And so first I have to sort of create a context where they can relax enough so that we can actually have a broader conversation, not about what they need to do or what they should do, but what they really want to do and what's really going to you know, allow them to grow into the person that they want to be uh, as they proceed in their career. So it's, it's managing that kind of anxiety, that very um, what we call sort of saboteur-driven anxiety, and turning it into a, a more of a conversation about anxiety and about values and about uh, what they vision, what they, what they really want to achieve, uh, and then orienting their anxiety to support uh, that vision. Hmm. Is it? And do you see with your clients that? I mean, th- this is something that can be controlled. We can we can do more and more to actually identify the type of anxiety we have and then operate, you know, and more aligned to it to utilize it more effectively. But there is hope, right? A lot of times people with anxiety would rather just kind of run away, it seems like, or or avoid it. But it seems like avoiding it only makes it worse. Well, that is unfortunately the case. Uh, There was a a meme floating around uh, on on Facebook last week, uh, which had this big iceberg and at the top of the iceberg, uh, above the water, was anger. And below the iceberg were all these other things, all these other emotions that, that in general don't tend to get spoken about. So on the surface, you have anger and frustration. And underneath, you have, among other things, anxiety and fear. And often, we only talk about the anger and the frustration. And we deal with the anger and frustration as if it's the real cause of the problem. And uh, I, if you start talking about those deeper emotions, and often they're the less empowering emotions are something very powerful about anger and frustration. It makes you feel strong, makes you feel powerful. When you start talking about fear and insecurity and anxiety, it's in a way a much more vulnerable place to be in. And so people would rather not go there. But unless you're willing to go there and talk about those kinds of things, then you never really get to the heart of the problem. And so you, you, you just create the same kind of problems over and over again. Hmm. 
So true. And um, again, it's it's like it, it it can start to consume your very approach to everything you do. It, it it manages how you think about the problem, how you see the problem. Boy, and then if you're not performing, if you're not getting the results you need, you can see how depression would eventually follow as well, and it just becomes an ugly cycle. Right, and then people deal with the depression uh, as a, a symptom rather than a cause, and so you know they drink, you know, attempt to drink their way out of it, or they, uh, you know, try and tackle it directly. Whereas, in, in, in my point of view, I mean, obviously, if you're suffering from very clinical depression, I'm, I'm speaking for the most part within the realm of, you know, healthy, functional folks. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I'm not an expert on, on serious um, uh, mental illness or anything like that. Uh, but you know, if you, if you if you just try and deal with the the symptom rather than the than the cause, it's it's never going to uh, get you the results you're looking for. Talk about the differences that you uh, you break anxiety into many forms, and they're all pretty common. What what are the forms of anxiety? How and how do they approach? Um, and so, like, and what would we see? I mean, I know one of them is performance, and that would probably manifest a different way than maybe just other other types of anxiety. Walk us through that. Yeah, so uh, performance anxiety is, in a way, a fairly straightforward one compared to some of the the, the, the less common ones. So, performance anxiety, you know, if you have to get up, go, get up and do a big presentation, uh, there's a lot of fear that comes up, a lot of sense of, you know, who do I want to be in this presentation? Am I at risk of being laughed at or anything like that? Um, and what do I even want to say? You know, it, it took me a long time to even sort of figure out that anxiety was at the heart of much of what I was seeing in the workplace. And until then, I had a sort of anxiety about what I would even say when you know, given an opportunity to speak uh, like I am now. So performance anxiety is, uh, I was a musician for a long time. I used to get all sorts of anxiety before I got on stage and, 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 and performed in front of people. So that's in a way quite a, a, a common one and one that I think there's a lot of support for. Uh, the less common ones are uh, existential anxiety and death anxiety. Nobody really wants to talk about these things. But uh, if you start thinking about death anxiety and, you know, the way that people think about death and approach death and uh, the reluctance to talk about death, you have to start wondering what's really going on there. And there's a lot of uh, uh, there's a psychotherapist called Irving Yalom who spent his whole career really talking to people about death anxiety. And he sees it as, you know, the core, you know, ground of our being is that we have certain anxieties about death and only by staring death down and, and really figuring out um, uh, how we feel about death can we start living uh, the life that we really want to, to be living. And and death anxiety at work, is that like if I'm losing my job, I would just start to obsess and kind of go worst case scenario or if I, I might assume I'm going to lose my job because of something I did. And then think, like your example, I'm going to live under a bridge. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, all these anxieties are operating just like, you know, technology is 24 hours a day, really, in our sleep when we're awake. Uh, how they show up at work is, uh, in part, the way that work is configured allows certain anxieties to be uh, embedded within the, the, the social system that, that exists at work. But let's say you're told out of nowhere that you're being let go for whatever reason. Firstly, there's a kind of survival anxiety that kicks in where, you know, how am I going to pay the bills? And then there's a kind of existential anxiety that kicks in of like, who am I now if I have to go back to my uh, spouse and, and, you know, admit that I'm not the man that she thought I was? You know, there's, there's, there's stories of people who 
don't tell their spouse for like weeks or months after they've been let go because they're so ashamed. Yeah. Uh, so, and that's, you know, a sort of existential anxiety do it, doing its thing because you just don't know who you are if you're not this person that you thought you were as defined by your work. Um, but the death anxiety really kicks in when, when you start thinking uh, about, um, you know, uh, how does my life look now and how does my death look now uh, that I have uh, no clear future? And I think there's all sorts of catastrophic thinking that can enter into that space where you imagine that, you know, uh, without this status and without this income, you're on a surefire path to, to death and destruction. Mm. So true. As a coach, um, and you can see how if, if you spend some time identifying uh, who you are, your identity, you know, what's important to you, and then focusing your activities on that, that that would strengthen your, your you, know, you know, your existential crisis if you lost a job or had to, you know, change jobs. Um, give us, is there an activity we could do today that might help us understand better our purpose, our mission, our place in life? And something we could be working on to to mitigate or minimize the existential crisis. Well, let me let me tell you a little bit about how I came to see uh, anxiety operating in my own life. Um, uh, five years ago, uh, I was uh, teaching in universities, and I was uh, wanting to do more one-on-one work with leaders and organizations. And so I started getting into that work, and, and at the same time, I started meditating every day. It was just something that I thought would be good for me. And so, you know, every morning for 30 minutes, I sit and I focus on my breath. Uh, and there's a meditation technique uh, that I don't know if you've ever meditated, but, but yeah. basically you focus on your breath and your mind for sure is going to wonder. Uh, and when it wonders, you bring it back to the breath. And there's a medita- meditation technique that says when your mind wonders, before you bring it back to your breath, you name the kind of wondering that mm. your mind has engaged in. So you say, uh, you know, uh, fantasizing or um, uh, you know, uh, thinking about cooking or whatever it may be. Uh, in my case, pretty much every time I named the kind of wondering that my mind had engaged in, it was worrying, hmm. worrying about this, worrying about this, worrying about the other. And I didn't think of myself as a particularly anxious person. You know, I bite my nails still, but, you know, it's not like I'm a kind of wreck uh, worrying about everything in my daily life. Uh, and so then I started talking to other people. I started reading about it and worrying is you know, at the heart of most people's mental activity, worrying in some form or other. So uh, one of the things that I can recommend, but it's something that most people are reluctant to do, is to calm your mind through meditation or some other calming technique so that you become aware of, firstly, the extent to which you worry. And, you know, not everyone worries to the same extent. Uh, yeah. I have two children. One of them's a bit of a warrior. The other one isn't. It's just kind of how they, they, they came out. But a lot of people worry much more than they think they worry. So if you can calm your mind enough to uh, clue into your uh, anxieties, then you can actually start working with them productively. It's when you kind of act from your anxieties rather than being able to externalize them and take a look at them and actually see them for what they are and start managing them so that they can... Uh, like like I said at the beginning, align with your long-term goals, uh, that can be really helpful. So, so meditating or journaling or even exercise or any kind of activity that allows you to really clue in to yourself, yoga, anything like that. 
Mm. It really is uh, this powerful work we could be doing on ourselves. As we wrap it up, Julian, what would you say is um, – I always ask for kind of the one thing that would make the biggest difference – it's something we could do today, and maybe you've already mentioned it, but is there is there one thing that we should be looking at to to manage better our anxiety at work? I think the more you can be aware that the problems that you're experiencing at work, either interpersonal problems or productivity problems, procrastination, time management, all those kinds of things, the more you can ask yourself, uh, what might be the underlying anxiety here? that is preventing me moving forward in the way that I would like to move forward on this particular challenge, the more likely it is that you're going to isolate what that underlying anxiety is. In other words, if you can start a conversation with yourself or ideally with others about anxiety so that you externalize it and actually put it on the table as something that you can look at by yourself or with others, I think that alone can have a significant impact on on your your self-awareness and and how you... uh, how you behave ultimately, because now you're not behaving from this place of anxiety, but you're behaving uh, with a recognition of the anxieties that are are showing up for you and driving you. Oh, so powerful, so true, and and the power we all have to help heal each other. Uh, Julianne Humphreys, thank you so much for your time, your your uh, your willingness to help teach us uh, how to take this to another level in our own lives. Again, Julian, can you can find out more about him on his website, julianhumphreys.com, julianhumphreys.com, where he can uh, give you more insight in how to develop a leadership capability to, to really be- better manage your own anxieties and your own worries um, and fears. Awesome stuff, folks. We will continue the journey, do a little Coach's Corner straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. you boy you too stupid to do what your coach tells you because life doesn't come with a handbook you need a coach here's dr matt and his coaching corner Play ball. welcome back you know uh anxiety is going up we talk about it on the show quite a bit now and uh, i think there's just so many reasons why right technology um plus how much we've enabled our children as as parents, you know, we never wanted them to feel the pain that we may have felt. So we did everything we could as a parent to to keep the pain out of their lives. And in so doing, we may have created little monsters that think that life is about not having pain. But uh, as Julian was teaching us, there really – there is some power, incredible power in you becoming more and more aware of your own uh, your own psyche, your own head, how your thoughts work. Um, so I wanted to take a minute and talk about our thinking. Uh, a lot of people, um, we, we don't even notice a lot of our thoughts. Some estimate that 90 to 95 percent of our own thoughts are subconscious. Not even We're not even consciously thinking them, right, until we, we sit down and start paying attention to what we're feeling, to what we're sensing, to what we're doing. And by just maybe meditating a little bit more, taking some time to ponder and to think about life and, and then and then naming it, then the thought doesn't have to just continue without any evaluation. We we might be perpetuating certain thoughts in our lives that that really have no use except just to keep holding us down. And for some reason our subconscious may think that's a good idea to just keep you from risking, to keep you from trying something new. 
And so thoughts perpetuate that ah, you're not good at this. You'll never be good at this. You'll never remarry. You'll never whatever the issue may be. So I wanted to give you a few tools um, to take on some of the thoughts and, and that may be impacting you. One thought, if you've ever spent a lot of time just stressing about things, um, sometimes our thoughts are used to organize us and we might have a thought or a prompting that comes across our mind that is really there to make sure we don't forget an appointment, that we schedule something, that we get it down. And I'm a big believer that thoughts are going to stay in your head and in your heart and in your mind until you do something about those thoughts. So with each one of these examples I give, there are ways to handle the organizing thought. When you think, I really need to get going on my homework, I need to get doing that, then then act on it. Start writing it down. Put it on the schedule. Make a list. Get out and, and actually do something. Pull out your phone and start making your to-do list. And by simply putting it on the to-do list, your brain can then let go of the thought and it doesn't have to keep recirculating that thought. But if you keep having the thought, I need to, I really need to work on that act thing. I need to work on it. I need to work on it. The fastest way to get rid of that thought is to go do something on the thought. Okay, so organize the thoughts by acting on them, scheduling them, writing them down, putting them on a to-do list. Some thoughts, though, aren't thoughts about scheduling. They're thoughts about connection, thoughts that connect us. And so what you might want to do with those thoughts are go share them. Those might be a thought, I really need to call so-and-so, you know, an old friend. And what you might want to do is find a way to go connect to that person really fast. Might text him, call him. Do whatever you can, but if you want to eliminate the thought, then act on it again by sharing it. Some of our thoughts are, might just be, and I saw this over the weekend with my kids, is share some thoughts that I've had um, about one of my kids. I felt prompted to tell him what I thought he'd be really good at when he when he went to college and what he should be studying because I think he'd be really excellent at this. And so I just connect with him on a walk and we talk about it and boom. Or tell them how proud of you, how proud of them you are about other things. If you're having the thought, getting that prompting, share the thought with the people and see if it doesn't connect us. Some thoughts, though, just block us, right? And there are ways I found to kind of dump the thoughts that get in the way, the thoughts that keep us down. One of my favorite ways to do it is, again, I believe you need to act on your thoughts if you want to eliminate them or get rid of them. And one of them is just writing. I call it data dumping. And I just suggest you write nonstop and get all your feelings, even if they're negative feelings. I wouldn't necessarily write these in your journal so all your kids down the road can see (laughs) your dark side. But you could just dump it on a piece of paper. And I suggest you write one line. Of whatever, whatever you're feeling and thinking, oh, that person drives me crazy, oh, they're so mean or whatever, don't try to edit yourself. Just get those thoughts out. Then what I like to do is write the second line right on top of the first line. And so when I write it, the second line on top of the first line, then I don't have to be perfect in it. I don't have to like, you know, all the grammar doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to look perfect. And then I write the third line on top of the first and the second line. So by the time I've written my third line, you can't read the line. But all of the energy is out of me. The thoughts are out of me, but it hasn't taken a form that anyone can read. It's not legible. So I feel free to dump my thinking, my stinking thinking, I call it, so that it's now in a place. And then when I'm done writing, and I write till I'm exhausted. That's how I get bad thoughts out of my head, bad ideas out of my head, people that frustrate me. That's how I get them out of me. Then I can just crumple up the paper and I throw the paper away and it's gone. 
And then the last kind of thought we can deal with are the thoughts that inspire us. I would journal those. I would get those in some book of, uh, you know, of your memories just so that you can keep those inspiring thoughts alive. And I always try to keep a, a journal or a book around me where I can write down my favorite quotes, write down my biggest lessons, and it's with me pretty much everywhere I go. And I it changes me. I think it, it helps me be a better person and it, it makes me realize that my life is meant to be written down. And it's not always that great, quite honestly, but it is that important that uh, I, I imagine that there will be a day that after I've died that – my kids or grandkids are going to be fighting for these journals. And they're not not—they're not like perfectly, you know, they're not journals. Dear diary, I confronted my biggest enemy today. No, it's just like, hey, I thought this today. I thought that was pretty funny. Boink. Sometimes they're dated. Sometimes they're not. But um, they're my thoughts and uh, they matter. They matter to me. And I think eventually they'll matter to others. It's where I get my ideas for books and content is just anything I've documented. And that's getting harder with technology because now I don't know, should I put it in a book or should I put it in my technology? Technology is always with me, but the book isn't. But I like the book writing more, so ah! So I'm still trying to work that one out. As soon as I come up with a good answer for that, I will give it to you. Anyway, that's The Coach's Corner. Just simple ways to manage your thoughts, uh, the thoughts that inspire you, the thoughts that block you, the thoughts that connect you, and the thoughts that uh, organize you. Take it or leave it. You know, all I can do is offer it up, give you some ideas of what I'm learning in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping us all manage our thoughts. Welcome back, folks. You know, uh, as we do what we can to give you a leg up in life, what better way to do it than to learn how you learn? Benedict Carey is a science reporter for The New York Times who focuses on the brain and behavior, and he writes about neuroscience, psychiatry, and neurology, as well as everyday psychology. He joined us on the show a few months ago uh, to talk about his book, How We Learn and the Science Behind It. We began talking about how parents could read this book and take that info straight to their families. Absolutely. I mean, parents are really the ideal audience for this. Um, and I think you, when you hit on something there, I mean, we were never taught how to learn. No one, no one ever yeah. teaches us that. We just, we're just given lectures about what's right and wrong in terms of learning. You know, get yourself to your room and open the books and, you know, put your head in kind of thing. Um, and that's not helpful. And, you know, in the end, uh, and I think, I think a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, longed for some mentoring Mm-hmm. Um, to be a student, and never got it. You just never get it. You're kind of on your own in a way. And and so I think for anyone, parents and kids for sure, um, it's nice to know what the science says about learning. I mean, you, at least you can, can be your own mentor a little bit. Um, and so that's the idea with this book. Do you, do you sense any difference with this new age where, you know, it's so technologically driven, we are so app-driven, and you know maybe the attention span of our our each of us is shrinking. Um, what what do you sense is going to happen with how we learn in the next you know couple generations? I tend to think, Matt, that the uh, the innovations and the technology are uh, can be indeed exploited to to sort of 
deep in learning mm. that is that they can be extremely helpful now we talked about this a little bit in the first break um if you're constantly distracted when you need to pay attention, it's not, yeah. not going to work for you, okay? Um, but here's what I think uh, about the sort of technolo- technological change. You know, you have on your phone now all sorts of capabilities, video, audio, little short movies, things that your friends send, pictures, photos, podcasts, books, all that stuff is available in your pocket. Um, and really... We all learn in a whole variety of ways, and I think that the technology is allowing people to do just that. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example from the newspaper. I mean, we're, I work with the New York Times. I'm a science writer there. And, of course, traditionally that's been old media. We, you know, we write stories. We, we print them uh, on the page. Of course, we've had to sort of change everything and try to innovate uh, at the paper. And one of the things that's being done <clears throat> effectively is to present stories uh, – not as simply printed text or even printed text with photos, but text, photos, podcasts, slideshows, mm. videos. Yeah. So you need, we have about half a dozen different ways for people to receive the information, and as we discussed before, changing the way that you approach a particular kind of information. Mixing it up is good. It's helpful. It multiplies the ways you sort of uh, are absorbing the information. <clears throat> That's so, so the true. Videos, good to see the podcast, etc. And, and I guess that makes it so. Then, if you incorporate all the other lessons about breaking up the time, how we how we bring it into us, and um, and kind of mixed, it's almost a mixed methods approach. Man, you actually might be able to leverage it even even deeper. Yeah, I think you'll be able to leverage this. Uh, look. We're all somewhat highly distractible. That was the truth. That was the case well before uh, all of the social media sort of swept the you know mm-hmm. swept the world. Um, we distracted ourselves continuously. I'll speak for myself. I certainly did so uh, well before the iPhones and so on. Um, <clears throat> but you're right. I think that uh, if and this will happen, um, the, you know, smart smarter people than I will put together the science which is independent of technology, by the way. All the scientific things that I write about in that book is things you can apply yourself. You don't need any fancy computer stuff. But they'll put together that with computer applications, right, that, right. that basically are built on the, you know, the foundation of the science itself. So, uh, and those, some of those I'm, I, you know, will be excellent. Mo- a lot of them will be bad. I'm not going uh, right. to, you know, how it's it is. Not, everything's not perfect, but, yeah. Well, I mean, not perfect, and a lot of the stuff will be junk, but, but there'll be some good stuff that will come out of that. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, you have a whole bunch of different ways you can learn through your phone, and I think that to the extent that that's built on, you know, the science of learning, the cognitive psychology of learning, can be very effective. What do you suggest as we, as we kind of um, think about this, like sitting down with our kids? How do you, how do you envision that happening? Do you, like, what do you do to to do that? Do you just sit down and start teaching them ideas? Or, or how do you suggest we as parents teach our children to learn? You, it depends on the kid's age. But the, you know, this is, the book I've written is not long. I sort of I'll read it pretty quickly. Uh, it'll give you a handful of techniques, about 10 of them, um, and, and a big idea about how they work together and so on, um, and how they're applicable. Now, Depending on the kid's age, you can, 
um, at some point you can teach them directly, but before then, I would say that's about middle school. Before then, well, you can do all sorts of stuff that makes studying a lot more fun and more effective, and I'll give you one example. Yeah. Um, well, we've already talked about switching locations. I mean, if you've had, you know, I have kids, uh, yeah, they're grown now, but, um, you know, they hated doing homework and they hated sitting still. They're very restless, so you can use that in your favor. So you can move them around. In other words, you don't have to be yelling at them to get back in the room. And <laughs> get in your room. Around as that's long it. as they continue to work. Right, that's already more fun than yeah. <laughs> standard homework. Um, and it's a better way to deepen the actual memory. Now, you can also have kids, depending on their age, play teacher, hmm. which is a great way. It's The actual technique is called self-testing or self-examination because you're having to draw on your knowledge and teach it to someone else. Now, kids of a certain age love playing teacher. Um, I mean, you can't, you know, that that... They love doing that, and that's a way of <clears throat> really deepening yeah. the study experience. And it's you know it's a ton more fun than again just having to strap into a chair. So uh, that's those are two examples. You bet. Uh, the point is you can you can basically adapt these techniques to uh, you know whatever your kid's doing. I, and <laughs> I've seen like it. I mean, a great thing today is let your kids as they get older and turn into teens, let them teach you about technology. <laughs> Yes, because yes, yes. that's where a lot of us are behind anyway. And, and man, what a powerful way when you put them in that role as teacher, then you can have them even start teaching the other kids just, you know, math or whatever stuff they've got to learn. We got about 30 seconds, Ben. And so just teach us. I mean, what's the one thing that we all ought to remember when it comes to our learning, our our growth? Um, what's the key? There's a couple of these keys. Take, take the pressure off yourself to try to live up to some ideal of how to study because there is none. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and the other one is, <clears throat> you know, no one ever got learning a 101 in the class, but it's there, it exists, and it allows you, most of all, it's the best part, to be tactical about your study. You don't have to pray that you're doing it right or wonder if you're doing it right. You can build techniques so you know you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. So those are the two big things. That's great. Relax, and relax, relax and, 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 and have tactics. Yeah, learn, and, and, and learn how you learn, and then build tactics around it. Exactly. It seems, yeah. it seems like easy learning. <laughs> it's never going to be easy. It never is, it is be it? easier. So true. Uh, Benedict Carey, again, is a science reporter for The New York Times who focuses on the brain and behavior, and he's written the book How We Learn and the Science Behind It. It's not easy, is it, to, to get our kids to, to learn and to, to feel like um, they, they understand it. But remember, think about yourself first. Did, do you, did you have a clue about how you operate? That's why uh, I always talk about how the, the, this show is like the, it's the user's manual because none of us got a user's manual about how to be a human being. But uh, we could make our our job, our kids' lives a lot easier if we could just start giving them a few clues about what works best for them. There may not be one way to do everything, but there are a lot of little things we could be teaching our kids along the way. And how to learn might be one of the first things we want to focus on. Anyway, again, more insight uh, on the show, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, along with Terry South and Becca Hurley. The gang is gathered, my friends. Today we're going to be talking about Amazon taking over healthcare. Uh, pretty interesting little dynamic when Warren Buffett sees a business opportunity and then he combines with Amazon and JP Morgan Chase and they think, hey, maybe what we ought to start doing is offering uh, health care. It's, it's a very interesting day. They're going to be doing it for their own employees. Why not uh, then create a product that everyone can use? So we'll get into that. What does that mean for the rest of us? Also, today we're going to be talking about we got to get into the fact that uh, President Trump's personal attorney has now had his offices raided by the, the uh, FBI. This seems to have upped the ante a bit in the Trump investigation. Interesting story. There was a lot of paparazzi that were outside the uh, office building this was happening in. It was either an office building or a hotel. I can't remember. Wow. But the paparazzi were out there because uh, McGregor, the, uh, the uh, UFC Ewan, fighter, Ewan oh. he went out. Not Ewan McGregor, but the UFC fighter. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right the fighter. The Irish What's fighter. His yeah, uh, I forget his first name. Yeah, yeah. But he, uh, over the weekend, took a security barrier yeah. inside a facility and threw it at the window of a bus. He he snuck into Colin McGregor. I Colin McGregor. So he, he he snuck in and wanted to With fight this team, other guy. Yeah, 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 it was this whole thing. So he that's what the paparazzi was outside the building waiting for when all these FBI guys come no walking way. in. And they said the majority of the paparazzi were like, "Yeah, it's fine. We're waiting for this guy because you know he threw a you know security barricade at a bus, not the guy that they they're didn't looking know for papers. what they had walked into. Holy yeah. cow! It was interesting. Just they were there for a whole different reason. And so there's a lot of photos. Of people walking in the building because they went all right take pictures of that this is it's boy by the way the mcgregor thing's crazy in and of itself right because he may have just shot himself in the foot from ever doing anything with the ufc maybe because or it's a huge hey this isn't wwe (laughs) we have standards (laughs) except for one of the ufc top fighters ronda rousey just fought with the wwe she's not in the ufc anymore right she's out of ultimate fighting yeah she lost one fight in the Apparently crushed everything, so now she's off to, you know, play act. Okay. That's how that works. That's how that works. (laughs) I guess. It is kind of ironic that uh, how this all comes together, though, because didn't President Trump bring on the the WWE's uh, founder's spouse as one of his cabinet members? She's running the uh, business bureau, I believe. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Because, you know, she ran a business. Well, it's all business. Yeah. It's all business. She's the, she's one of the, well no I was going to say she's one of the only members of the uh, the uh, McMahon family not to actually go in the ring but she's actually been in the ring before too so well, so is Donald yeah well it's exciting <laughs> wow and uh, meanwhile the president's personal attorney is is now had his office raided which yeah. means you know information about the whole a lot of the scandals with some of these ladies and mm-hmm. a lot of data is now. In the hands of the FBI, which he doesn't trust much anyway, and that now has put Sessions back in play, Rod Rosenstein back in play. Hmm. A lot of fun stuff. Let's get to the headlines, Terry. So, What's going on? As we're talking about, President Trump has declared attorney-client privilege dead. The morning after FBI raided the offices of his personal attorney, Michael Cohen, officials in New York 
are said to have seized documents about payoffs in a raid the president has called the disgrace and an attack on our country. Tweeting Tuesday morning, the president said the raid marked the end of attorney-client privilege, which keeps communication between an attorney and a client secret, and said that it was unfair targeting his personal lawyer. He's calling it a total witch hunt and blasted, the uh, as the president said in another tweet, it's interesting the witch hunt is being led by people he appointed to office. Yeah. That's a thing to keep in mind. Are they from Salem, Massachusetts? Uh, No, but uh, each of them had to go across his desk. He went, yeah, that guy should be good for the job. Now they're running a witch hunt against him. Well, and it's weird how he talks because one minute he's saying Rod Rosenstein did a good thing because he signed off on firing Comey. Right. And he's also saying he did a bad thing because he signed off on allowing the FBI to go investigate his attorney. Exactly. It makes total sense. Seems a little confusing. Now, uh, Axios.com talked to a former uh, deputy, let's see, a former U.S. attorney to kind of help kind of figure out what's going on. He says... The guy says, here's what must have happened. Mueller bumped into evidence of criminal conduct that was beyond his scope. So he deferred it to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Rod had the option of expanding the Mueller mandate or sending it to the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York. He sent it to the New York yeah, attorneys, yeah. right? The the uh, They're calling it the, the Southern District in New York, then looked at the evidence, decided to open an investigation, and ultimately decided that Cohen would have documents relevant to the investigation. The uh, Southern District then decided that Cohen could not be trusted to produce the documents pursuant to the subpoena, or else he would they would have just subpoenaed the documents. Right. So they had to serve a find. They had to get a warrant. So this has nothing to do with Mueller, except that he found something in one of his investigations. He didn't get an extension of his uh, his mandate. Right. And instead, another bureau of the FBI is investigating you know, the process of law. Yeah. There's people looking at it but judging. But if you don't trust the FBI like the president doesn't, then he thinks, why aren't we doing this with Hillary? So the, they consulted with the Department of Justice as required, probably Rosenstein, and they obtained a search warrant, which meant they had probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that Cohen was evidence that there was uh, that was fruit or instrument of evidence of the crime. Cohen's lawyer said that a search warrant was based in part on ref- a referral by Mueller, and this guy expects that after getting the initial referral, the Southern District started poking around and developed independent an independent interest for obtaining the search warrant. And with all that, well, all they seized, including electronic evidence, any evidence of crime is now fair game. Mm. So now, now Trump has the added, added problem. It's not Mueller. It's also the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York that's looking into him. And it's just, it's expanding now. So now we've gone beyond Mueller. Well, now it's interesting. Now you have, you don't just have uh, the alleged women issues, Mm -hmm. but you now, and you don't have just the Russia issue. Right. You now have another investigation where the FBI are involved with his attorney. Yes. And Mueller's three or four investigations. Mueller is now looking into some payments coming from Ukraine to the Trump uh, Trump uh, campaign. He got 150 grand for doing a 20 minute speech. It was like he skyped into some conference in Ukraine. By by the way, paid by Russians. Yeah. While he's in, he is now, and he's now uh, at the time he was, uh, he was just starting his campaign. Yeah. Not so they're like, what is all this money? Where is it coming from? So all this crazy. uh, And a cabinet that, that same cabinet meeting. Yeah. President Trump condemned the suspected chemical attack in Syria, calling it heinous, and just saying that mm. he will make a, some major decisions in the next 24 to 48 hours. That's so we could have 
military action, possibly in the middle wow, of this. Wow, this is crazy. Also, uh, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg will be yeah. testifying today. Yesterday, a, the uh, what the House Committee on Energy and Commerce released his prepared statement. He says he is sorry. Uh, we messed up. It's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm. As well, that goes for uh, you know that goes for fake news, foreign interference in elections, and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. It was my mistake, and I'm sorry. He'll testify at two fifteen Eastern. Wow! Apparently, networks are going to bring all their 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 top anchors in to 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 lead you into the 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 the, the testimony, and then to sum it up at the end and turn it into big now, TV events. It seems kind of strange because we've been talking about the real value of Facebook is the data. Yeah. And we've been talking about that for three or four years. Right. This can't be new. But, but it seems like it's new to a lot of people. I think it's connected to the volatile election. That's really what's amped this up. Okay. If they were just selling us, like, you know, cell phone cases, no one would yeah. really care. But it's attached to politics, and people are like, hey, wait a second. This is why the president got elected. Well, yes and no. Yeah, they're blaming Facebook and Google, but in what, reality, what's a lot of people voted for them, The right? Cambridge Analytica company, yeah. Ted Cruz dropped them because they didn't do anything. It didn't their, work. Their, their process was, they, they saw it, that it turned out that the people didn't really know what they were doing. They were just, it was kind of like smoke and mirrors, snake oil, that kind of thing. Yeah. And people were using it because certain donors, the Mercer family, said, if you want our money, you must use this company. Wow. That was kind of how that all went together. The tangled web. So the the actual like effectiveness of what these people, what Cambridge Analytica said they were doing with the data, is suspect as if it even did anything. Yeah, I think it's more just the idea like you're using our data, but now they know that you have a puppy and you like these TV shows. <laughs> it's no. not like they gave over like credit card and your you know yeah. your credit information yeah. all that. But kind they of stuff. they and now more information is coming out that Google knows. If kids are surfing. Oh, yeah. So now that Google may be giving away kid information. Right. Information about your children. It's just going to roll downhill here. Ah. It's going to be bad. Finally, an upstate New York police department fed up with lingering cold weather has placed winter under arrest. Oh, boy. The Depew Police Department wrote Friday in a humorous Facebook post that it has arrested the season. Police say any more snow winter produces will be held against it in court. The department also called for Groundhog Puxicani Phil to yeah. turn himself in for predicting six more weeks of winter. That's twice now. We have two different stories rodent. of the police looking to arrest a rodent. D- there's They're not... turning on Puxicani Phil. How do you put little cuffs on that guy? I'm not sure. Police joke, well, zip ties. On those little on yeah. those little Just get hands? Diff- different sizes of zip ties and you don't have to worry about He'd it. He'd probably need like... Three zip ties. Right. Just because he's got, he's a big guy. Police joke that they're willing to look past winter's most recent transgressions if it works with the department. New York has experienced wintry weather this month and high winds and caused power outages, as many other parts of the country have. Wow. We can arrest winter now, apparently. Don't know how that's going to work. No. Excited for the arraignment, though. <laughs> hey, straight ahead, we're going to be talking about healthcare. Uh, why is it so darn complicated? And what will Amazon's entry into the healthcare world, uh, how will that impact the rest of us? You know, Amazon's pretty good at uh, helping you shop online, right? Do you think they could help us buy our healthcare online? We'll talk about it straight ahead.
Earlier this year, Amazon announced that they would be partnering up with different companies to improve health care for their employees and to lower health care costs. And, uh, you know, is, is this something that we should all be paying attention to? I would say yes. Our guest this morning is no stranger to our show or the subject. Here to speak with us about this topic uh, is the former president and CEO of a health insurance company and a professor of health care finance at Case Western Reserve, uh, J.B. Silvers. Thank you so much for being with us today, and welcome back. Great. Thanks, Matt. Good to talk to you. So this this is a weird uh, a weird thing. Amazon, the kind of the... I guess the gold standard of of helping people shop online is now saying that they're going to be entering the the healthcare system really I guess by providing better healthcare for their for their employees, right? But talk about their partnerships, who are they partnering up with and why should we care about any of this? Well, they're partnering partnering with JP Morgan uh, for one and Berkshire Hathaway for another. So wow. Jamie Diamond and and uh and Warren Buffett. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And by the way, big companies too. They, these these organizations between the three of them, there's a there's hundreds of thousands of employees through those organizations. Yes, they're all large companies. Uh, Amazon's gotten enormous now, and the others are not small at all. So, lots and lots of people. So they've got a, a very good base to start with of their own employees. And they're also have to be self-insured. So all that they spend on health care comes right off their bottom line. They've got a strong incentive to do this. Now, you wrote an article in theconversation.com about uh, how this could end up being a major disruptor in the health care system because you, you, you really have, uh, you have Amazon, a major sales organization, J.P. Morgan, uh, understanding finance, Berkshire Hathaway that owns a lot of companies, um, Talk about how this could upset the healthcare system, and is there something bigger going on than them just trying to create something for their own employees? Well, that's the big question. They have not announced what they're going to do, so all, everything everything is speculation at this stage. But I can imagine them sitting around the three of them sitting around playing bridge. And they think <laughs> they're all bridge players. Are they really? Yeah. <laughs> Let's, this is awful. You know, we're paying way too much, and it goes up too fast every year. Let's figure out how to do something. We know how to do it. Let's figure out how to make it work. So um, the disruption, it's hard to tell what it would be, but anytime Amazon even looks at another industry, everybody reads disruption because they've done it successfully in so many places now. But most of that's been on retail. So the the difference here is that most of healthcare, uh, a lot of the the underlying nature of the way of the way employer based policies work, is business to business, not business to, to consumer. So what are the, what's their role? Well, it's mainly going to be in using their electronic awareness, um, getting people to choose more carefully, help, helping people to shop among the alternatives, the stuff that they do. Mm. right now really well. Wow. Um, Berkshire Hathaway is, and J.P. Morgan, for that matter, are both strong in finance and insurance. Yeah. Um, so those those private companies, they know how to deal with those excess risks. What they don't know is how to deal with things together. So um, my guess is there's a bigger story going on mm. here that's behind it, that maybe, uh, maybe that is the real disruption is changing the paradigm of how we're going to be organizing healthcare. Well, and and maybe for just the rest of us, it might help that you explain 
in your article, you talk about how most insurance isn't really insurance anyway. And so maybe talk about that. What What is really going on when we are, uh, you know, getting insurance through our organization and paying our co-pays? How, what are we really paying for, really? Well, there are two or three things you're getting when you talk to an insurance company. They, they, the one you obviously know about is, is insurance. You're taking care of risks. But you don't have to have that many people in a pool to get rid of the highs and lows. Uh, 100, 200, 300 employees is plenty for the, the really sick patients, the employees, to, to be balanced out by the over larger mass of well patients. So you don't need to pay somebody else to bear that risk when you get to be above a fairly small size. So what you're buying from an insurance company, when that card that you carry around your pocket is really shows that they've contracted with a network um, and then they, they know how to pay claims. So they basically are doing transactional kinds of things for you. That's valuable, and it's something the employer doesn't want to do. So you buy those services from somebody else. But those services aren't done very efficiently. Uh, you avoid some state regulation by doing that because you're not an insurance company. States regulate insurance. So ERISA is the federal, federal law that lets you get out from underneath insurance uh, regulation, and that's valuable. So you avoid some taxes and some other things, uh, and you can shape it to whatever you want. So you can change the benefit structure. You can do other sorts of things, and companies have been reasonably creative in doing that, but they've had to rely on these outside people, the insurance companies. The important thing is these three are not insurance companies. <laughs> that makes a difference. Yeah, they're doing something different. But the, I guess they could be doing what uh, Blue Cross or is Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, that is an insurance company. It's an insurance company that started out as sort of the prototype insurance company. They're they're sort of the GMAC or the Chrysler from the of the of the healthcare world. Hospitals, when they, the price of hospital care got to be high enough said, we need to finance this over a larger body. So they created this pooling mechanism. Hmm. Over the years, that pooling mechanism was very simple. It was anybody who wanted to sign up got the same rate. But that sort of fell apart when commercial insurance companies came in and said, you know, we can we can carve off this one healthier group and treat and charge them less money. And so the, the, the what's called community rating fell apart. So now now they're like everybody else. They sell individual policies, they'll sell group policies, and they mostly do this uh, what's called administrative only contract. They make contract with employers to provide uh, contracting services with provider networks and to pay the bills. Mm. It's interesting how much of this is just bill management, bill pay and yeah. bill collection versus actual because the the, health, the the hospitals provide the health care, uh, but then you really have these companies that are just pushing papers and and getting the money from the companies to cover the costs. Well, but that's a very valuable resource, yeah. and it's something people don't do. So, you know, a manufacturer doesn't make all the parts; they buy some from outside. They don't. They may not even have their own cleaning service. They may contract with somebody to come in and do that, or their cafeteria. So, contracting out isn't isn't bad. The differential thing is you contract out to people who can do it better than you, who have more expertise or a broader or get economies of scale or something else like that. And that's where that's where the industry hasn't done a very good job. You know, we've got some major market imperfections 
And as I've thought about this since they made this announcement, I think I think what we're seeing here, and again with some of these strange combinations that have been announced of insurance companies and drug com- drug stores and other things, Humana and, and uh, uh, CVS and the others, is a restructuring around some market imperfections, some some real inefficiencies hmm. that exist, and. Um, we don't know how that's going to settle out, and I think this is another one of those. So um, it, they're disruptors, and yet in the end they could be – I mean if, if you start to fix some of the major market imperfections or improve the efficiencies, then it seems like that would be good for everyone. Yeah, and, and this is like, a, a, it's like the next step. Uh, the consolidations happen in healthcare care happen for three big reasons so far, I think. One is market power. Uh, hospitals got together and created big systems so they could bargain with the insurance companies better. And that worked. You know, they got, they pushed back. They're consolidating. Other things are happening. You're getting doctors involved in all because of reactions to risk. Right. We're asking people to take on a lot more risk, and you have to have more, more of a critical mass to do that. The next wave, I think, is around inefficiencies. The, and, and I'd call that transactions cost that are just not very good. The following wave, and we're in the middle of this one too, is let's do a better job with actual medical care. You know, yeah. figuring out how to actually do it better. That's not what this is about. Or that's the next one that's going to come. This is about inefficiencies, I think. Interesting. The two that I see these guys dealing with that are sort of below the waterline. One is um, the middlemen that that don't add much value and are taking too much out of the pie. And the two that are sort of obvious behind, largely around these other mergers rather than this one, but I think this one too, are pharmacy benefit management companies, which are beginning to get in the news more, um, and brokers and um, and consultants for for employers that haven't made it in the news. Both of those two entities, and this is drawing back on my insurance company days, um, don't don't provide as much value as they should for what they charge. Um, the, the drug companies are trying to make the pharmacy benefit management companies into bad guys. Uh, and we've always been a little concerned about whether the brokers are really operating in our benefit or in somebody else's benefit, the dueling both sides of the transaction. Those are both inefficiencies. These guys are sitting around, I think, and getting advice from uh, folks and thinking of it themselves and saying, you know, we don't need either one of those. Hmm. We can cut both of those out of this thing. And we can save money that they're taking out of the out of the uh, to the value chain in ways that uh, are going to you know add up to ten, fifteen, twenty percent of the total pie. Wow, that's real money. That is well, especially when you think of these players that are involved. Uh, we're speaking with J.B. Silvers, who is uh, a past CEO of a health insurance company and a professor of healthcare finance at Case Western Reserve. He's been on the show two or three times, walking us through everything healthcare because it's such a complicated mess. In fact, it's interesting. Was it Warren Buffett that called this, the, the whole kind of, the healthcare issues uh, that we're dealing with and the inefficiencies, is that what he described as the tapeworm yeah, issue? That's a great, great phrase. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It just kind of lives off of you and just, it's just a taker. Well, that's why I've, I've sort of been thinking, well, tapeworm, tapeworms are things that they're sort of invisible. They're inside your body doing bad things, you know, and yeah. eating you up. So what is it about this? Well, he, he didn't actually say that it's the doctors and hospitals that are really the cause. And frankly, they really are. You know, they're 
it's costing too much to provide the care. But the tapeworm could be your body cells, but it also could be this foreign body that's living inside you doing things you don't really want. I mean, he didn't really say we're going to go after the muscle tissue and the heart, Mm. uh, which they may and they will want to do by using their leverage. But but I do think that that some of this is about transactions cost. Again, I've been thinking, you know, what's, what's, what's going on here? Uh, famous economist Ron Coase got the Nobel Prize in 91 for pointing out that industries get organized around transactions costs, that we we integrate, we consolidate, we do, we, and now with the Internet, we break things apart around how much it costs to get to get things done. Right. So we have integrated steel companies that do things together, and then we had integrated auto companies, and then we break them up and we get suppliers coming from all over because the transaction costs, mainly in this case transportation, is a lot less than it used to be. I think we're having a restructuring around how much does it cost to contract with the drug companies for the pharmaceuticals we need. That's a biggie. How much does it cost for the company that's buying health and health care for their employees and the providers that are giving it, how much does that cost? And that's the brokers. Mm. So we're going to have some of these middlemen that are transaction costs that are, that's where I'd be most concerned if I were in one of those, in the shoes of one of those people, and the insurance companies. Insurance companies are middlemen. Yeah. Um, do we really need to have the really complicated claims payment process we have? Well, Amazon and PayPal and people like that have figured out how to make it pretty transparent. You know, now can they do that in healthcare? It's a much bigger nut. <laughs> yeah, totally. But, but you can see how they could they can think, well, we can we can make a, you know, we can make a stab at this and maybe change things. And it seems like like just with what you're saying, if we get more clarity on the transaction costs and we can actually see the numbers better and more clearly, which which these guys uh, Amazon um uh, J.P. Morgan and uh, whoever's uh, oh Berkshire, Berkshire they, yeah, they're they're pretty good at managing the numbers and gathering the data and getting yeah. the choices out there. Then then it's almost like you know it's you know we're we're pulling back the curtain a little bit and then we can compare apples to apples. Well, the big one is Amazon and the fact that the insurance companies are trying to do this when you go in to get an MRI or something, they pre-approve it. And they'll tend to tell you, and by the way, this your hospital is going to charge X thousand for this thing, and you can go down the street to XYZ cut rate place and get it for X hundred. Mm. You know, they already try to do that. Well, that doesn't work very well because the system has to be integrated, and I want my hospital to know what my, my, my images look like rather than some guy that's got to ship it over to the hospital later. But... The fact that Amazon makes shopping so easy and they make comparisons so easy, they can do even that comparison a lot better than, than mm-hmm. the, the typical insurance company. And there's no question they've got that in mind. So That's when I want to choose between centers of excellence and I want to look at the quality versus versus the – we've the, the Medicare's tried this. They've got uh, hospital compare and nursing home compare and a bunch of things out there. They haven't made much difference because hardly anybody goes and looks up what is it, what's the quality outcome. Main right. reason is they don't have the cost too. Yeah. So the, the assumption is the cost is the same. Well, it's not all the same. You know. So, 
So that, that they don't they only do half the shopping there. When and Amazon wants to do the whole thing. When do you sense that we'll see an impact of any of this? I mean, I guess they have to formally say they're going to get into it. Um, but is this something we'll, we could see in the next couple of years, or is this five years, ten years down the road? Oh, I think Amazon has got a reputation for disrupting industries pretty rapidly. I mean, they're, they're changing the clothing industry now. They, they started with books. That's true, huh? And completely changed the book industry. Yeah. I remember buying my first book on Amazon when they were nothing, you know, thinking, I thought at the time, I thought, oh, this is big news. These guys are going to change everything with this. Well, they changed the book industry. They're changing the publishing industry, the music industry, and now the clothing industry and shopping uh, for groceries and everything else. They, they, uh, they, they Everybody goes to Amazon yeah. first. That's where you go. They're ch- they and, changed Walmart. I mean, they're competing uh, they, now they're, with Walmart. Exactly. And so you now Walmart's back in the, in the thing. We're thinking, well, how are we going to play this game? Mm. So, and Nordstrom's just in the business. I mean, they're, everybody's got to be on the web. Yeah. And it's because of Amazon. They're the di- disruptor. So amazing, um, you know. And the fact is, insurance companies have tried to do what these people are probably wanting to do, but they haven't been very effective at it yet for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, and employers have maybe wanted more of this, but they didn't know what to ask for because they don't know this business very well. Right. Right. Oh, wow. Well, JB, we appreciate you. This is great insight, I think, for all of us to, to better understand what's going on and the, the next front on the healthcare line. It looks like inefficiencies and in transaction costs. Eventually, we'll get to better medical care, <laughs> which is hopeful, right? But to Amazon, man, they're making a move. JB Silvers, thank you again. Again, remember, JB is a, is a past president of a health insurance company and CEO, and also a professor currently of healthcare finance at Case Western Reserve University. Great uh, insight, and obviously his dog. He's working his dog. His dog probably wants to get out for his walk. We will uh, continue the journey, folks, doing what we can on the program to give you the information, the tools you need to live a healthier, happier life. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, folks. It is April 10th, and because it's April 10th, we've got to let you in on the little secret. Today is National Siblings Day. National Siblings Day, the day we need to celebrate our siblings. Uh, April 10th is um, the day that you, you really need to appreciate that incredible gift from God. If you have a brother or a sister, you understand that life wouldn't be the same without them. Um, you know, obviously some tortured you. I had three sisters that, and I was the baby, and they took as they took great care of me. They used to hold me down, though, by the way, and brush their long 1970s hair over my face, uh, which now makes me hate hair. But other than that, uh, love my siblings to death, think they're incredible. And uh, today's the day you're going to want to give them a call, text them, do whatever you can to help them understand what a great uh, and important uh, resource they were for you in your life. Um, Think of all of the things that your siblings may have taught you. Now, some of them, obviously, (laughs) dramatic, depending on uh, where you fit. Uh, Boy, it's too bad Jeff's not here today. Um, Jeffrey Liam Simpson always had fun stories about his brothers. you know, taking him to town. And, uh, but I, I had a, I had sisters that, 
that literally would they were caregivers, they were protectors, they took care of me. I had a sister that uh basically followed a prompting once. Um, she was supposed to pick me up and uh, just didn't feel right that she was going to go run an errand, pick me up and then run the errand, um, but just didn't feel right about it. So decided not to come pick me up, I believe, is how the story goes. I was young, and uh, she ended up getting in a car accident, and it, it hit the side of the car where I would have been back in the day before we cared about seatbelts, really, or, you know talking about anyone wearing them. We always had them rattling around the seats, but never were using them. And um, honestly, it it probably protected me. Or I think she may have taken me home and then went to run this errand. So thank heavens for uh, siblings that do watch out for you, that do care for you. I remember vividly going with my sister as it was her, uh, my second sister, as it was her turn to watch and take care of me. But she was a very social sister and wanted to get to her friend's house, so she took me on the bike. I remember uh, riding along with her. I remember playing with my sister in the backyard, and she really wanted to do an obstacle course. And I'm like, let's just play, let's just play ball, let's just throw a ball around or kick a ball around. She's like, no, we have to build an obstacle course, and we did it her way, and she broke her foot. So you know, that's just how families work, and we we stay together. We go to our hospital trips together. I remember uh, them coming to ball games of mine. I remember um, them supporting me as I went on my LDS mission. I just over and over and over, families, they matter, right? And today is the day that you can actually do something about it. You have a reason today to celebrate your siblings. So take a little time. Write them a text, send them an email, get them on the phone, and thank them for being your sister or your brother as we celebrate National Siblings Day. I have a million stories. You have a million stories. I wouldn't know uh, the music bands or the bands Chicago or Bread or uh, Elton John or Neil Diamond if it hadn't been for my sisters. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't know that if it hadn't been for my sisters when I ran into the back of a Jeep riding my bike as I was mesmerized watching my feet spin below me and I ran right into the back of a Jeep. I wouldn't have had anyone to pick me up off the ground. But my sisters were there. And so uh, siblings, they matter and you matter as a sibling. And sometimes I wonder if we haven't we think we may have outgrown each other. We don't need each other as much. But honestly, you know, if it if it came down to somebody getting sick, somebody needing help, somebody going into surgery, we worry when it's our family and our loved ones. And so today of all days, let's look out for each other. Let's do what we can to uh, to take care of each other. And now you have a reason. More than ever before, you have a reason for why you need to take care of each other because you know what? It's National Siblings Day. So just a little shout out to the siblings. And if you don't have siblings, borrow some. Some days I'll let you use mine. You know, those days those sisters were just hovering over me, watching everything I did, chasing down every girl I ever brought home, scaring them out of the house. Scary. Families are forever, folks. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Everybody needs to belong. They need to feel like they belong. And so uh, we've, we're going to revisit an interview we did with Dr. Brian Willoughby, who's an assistant uh, associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University. Dr. Willoughby folk research uh, and all of his work focuses on young adult dating and relationship patterns. And we began the interview by talking about the need to belong and what that actually means. When we talk about a need to belong, we're talking about almost this this need to have other people care about us and, and be looking out for our well-being. Yeah. We, we, we have this desire to have other people want to want to to know what's up with us and want to know what what we need in our life on a day to day basis. Yeah. And, and so really, it's it's is it something different than having needing a friend? It, it can be a friend. Yeah. And it, it, it kind of goes based on which part of our life we're at. If right. you look at younger kids, particularly adolescents, that need to belong in social circles with peers is huge, mm-hmm. right? That's where we get a lot of yeah. it. We, we don't want our parents to give us that anymore. Right. We That's want weird. from our friends. Um, as we get later in life in adulthood, it, it oftentimes is romantic relationships, and whether it, it's marriage or, or other relationships in our life. So it starts too, though, as a kid, as a as a child, I want to belong to my parents. I want right. my parents to, so they provide that. Mm-hmm. Yep. So this gets into that whole. This gets into the attachment issues yes. and the need to 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 know you're safe. You mm-hmm. belong to somebody that you're safe there to grow and develop. Right. I'm safe. Someone will take care of me. Mm-hmm. Right. Because even though we we all innately want to take care of ourselves, we have that survival instinct. There yeah. is also this this need to want other people to look out for me too. That someone else will be there for me. Someone else will have my back. What happens when we don't feel like we have that? Mental health, depression. Yeah. Anxiety. Um, in fact, a, a lot of those kind of very basic mental health issues that a lot of people have are, are based in loneliness. That's usually how it gets manifested, mm. as people describe. I'm just lonely mm. all the time. I don't feel like I have, I don't feel like anyone understands me. Um, but it's usually based in those attachment issues and, and that, that desire to belong to, with other people. How do you? How do you fix that? I mean, a lot of that is that's that there is mental health 101, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if somebody has this, you might be more detached, you might be less likely to find a healthy relationship, right. yeah, pull away too easy. Yeah, well, it, it depends because this can range. I mean, yeah. you can go all the way to someone that's really struggling with this that might need professional help and a therapist to help them work through some of those issues. Um, but really, the other thing this gets into is, is all this research we have on the power and benefit of long term marriages. Hmm. We know that people that are married are healthier physically and mentally, and and a lot of that is you've got someone there for you that's got your back. You've got that sense of belonging, at least if it's a healthy relationship, um, and th- that's that's why marriage is so powerful for so many people. Mm. I mean, it really is when you think about – but they also get boring, I guess, too, because so, <laughs> you would think that once you're married, you finally have this one person that you know has your back. You can always go to them. But then maybe we fade. We fade in that relationship. Yeah. What happens there? A little bit. It, it, it changes yeah. over time. But we, the other thing we know about marriages that last for several decades is they become much more based on commitment. There's that safety. There's I, I know that person, even if it's, again, a little boring maybe. Yeah. I know that person's there for me. They understand me more. And this, this is actually very powerful for men. In particular, really, again, back to that research about the benefits of marriage for men—that's particularly true. And one of the interesting things we see when people get married, 
a lot of women tend to keep their social circles. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of men drop them. Yeah. You know, I, I got keep all them I need. <laughs> yeah. By, and they put a lot of their emotional investment in their wives, a lot of their social needs into their wives. That's the person that I can come talk to. That's the person I can come confide in about my day, about my struggles, you know, even though we're men. So we only do that a little bit, but yeah. that's that person I can focus on. And interestingly, it seems like then, so the marriage relationship is distinct from just any even cohabitating dating relationship, romantic relationship, mm-hmm. because because we have a commitment? What's the difference? Yeah, commitment is, is huge. One of my uh, colleagues out at the University of Denver, Scott Stanley, has, has oh, written him. a lot about yeah, he's this. He's been on the show a couple times. Yeah, and, and he, he talks about the power of that commitment to someone, that the knowing that I, if I mess up, you're kind of stuck with me. And it sounds kind of, you know, like, well, I don't want you to be stuck <laughs> yeah. with me. Deal with but, it. <laughs> yeah, but there is something about knowing that in my uh-huh. head, that we are committed to each other. We've made those vows um, to each other, and so I can rely on you. That's huge. Yeah. So so if we're in a relationship, and let's say we're married, and we we don't necessarily feel, we feel like this need, this, this attachment, this need to belong is slipping. Mm-hmm. What do we do? What do we, is it fixable? It is. Yeah, it's definitely fixable. And this is actually, again, a lot of the basic relation advice you hear out there connects back to this, things like date nights Mm -hmm. and things like just talk, spending time talking and reconnecting with each other um, can redevelop that, that bond, that sense that we, we know each other, we understand each other's lives, um, that, that you're the person I come and talk to about my fears and my anxieties. And so, so being open with Mm -hmm. those things too. That's huge. And and it, it is. So if you're not seeing that connectedness, then you probably need to Get serious about it. Yeah. And, and back to the date night ideas. I think some people get this idea of, well, I need to date my spouse. And so that means we need to go have fun and go to a movie and go right. to dinner. And Keep it exciting. Yeah. It's, it's not really about what you're doing. It's about what you're doing while you're on that date. Are we getting away from the kids? Are we getting away from everything and talking about our lives, about what's going on? And, 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 and again, having that time to connect with yeah. each other. I mean, it's almost like it's... We always think we get bored with our spouses, mm-hmm. but it's really more we just feel kind of disconnected. Right. And the, so the, everything you're saying about those date nights, those are kind of predictable. Let's just go talk. Mm-hmm. And but let's, let's actually talk and be vulnerable. Right. And the, being talking and vulnerable actually will create more connectivity than having a really fun date. Oh, yeah. You know, water skiing. Yeah, because you can go do something really fun with your kids or uh-huh. with a coworker or with yeah. someone else. It's it's those deeper conversations we can have with our spouse that makes the relationship unique. This is different than when I do those type of things with everyone, everyone else. And that was Dr. Brian Willoughby, again, an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, helping us understand why and how uh, how we handle this need to belong. Think about it just as as a fellow human – I, everybody needs to know that they're safe, they're secure in life and in their uh, group, in their family. And imagine the impact that that could have the day that uh, you, you don't feel that. Boy, what 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 um what am I supposed to think when I know I don't belong in a family? Or I don't feel I belong. I don't feel like I belong in a community, in a group, in a neighborhood, at my school. I don't belong. Uh, you can see how people get desperate, and then those desperate uh, moments create some pretty uh, desperate uh, lives. So anyway, interesting stuff. Boy, by the way, speaking about lonely, listen to this. A woman gets a $10,000 voucher after being bumped off a United Airline flight. 
A Washington, D.C. woman says she received a $10,000 travel voucher from United Airlines after she was urged to give up her seat on an overbooked flight. And if you haven't been flying lately, this is becoming kind of the norm uh, of the airlines. They they pack it deep and sell it cheap, and then they pay ten grand, I guess, to get you to get off the plane. Allison Priest uh, adds, United offered her a voucher following complications with her seat on a recent flight from D.C. to Austin. I never asked for a larger amount. The agent just escalated quickly. She told the Washington Post Friday, Price said that she initially was offered $2,000 voucher and the next for the next available seat on another flight and added that the airline employee eventually just told her she could be offered up to a $10,000 voucher for her troubles. With, and no firm plans, but I'm thinking I'm going to Hawaii, Price said. So one thing you can do is you you can hold out. You can be sure it's a little lonely because you're the one that just has to walk off the plane or not get on the plane as all your friends and others are leaving. But, man, if you've got uh, some free time and a little bit of a and maybe some open, you know, life, go for ten grand on United Airlines. By the way, that may not be the number they want out there. They'd probably rather just give you a $200 voucher. And, you know, a little coupon to Cinnabon. That would be nice. I mean, who wouldn't take that? Oh, I have to say, like, United is, they've they've gotten a little beating on their reputation yeah, lately. Had, this is, they've had a hard couple of years. A $10,000 voucher sounds like probably one of the best PR now, things they could do right now. Everyone out there is going to be asking for the $10,000 voucher. Sorry, best I can do is Cinnabon coupon. Um that's why we do the show, to give you these great little bits of advice. So now next time you're asked to, to bump, hey, be willing to bump. Maybe it might even be worth you planning a little travel bump into your plans. Take one extra day, call it the bump day, and you and your spouse would be willing to give up two seats and pick up five grand $5,000 voucher. Then you really could travel anywhere, maybe, you know, anywhere. If you got to $10,000 one, you could pretty much go anywhere in the world, couldn't you, for ten grand? Anyway, doing what we can to help you make your life easier, one flight at a time, one $10,000 voucher at a time. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Welcome to the program. Wow. <laughs> Thanks. Your voice is changing. Yeah. It's nice know. to see you're growing up finally, I'm Matt. going through that change, that special change. Welcome to the program. So much to cover today. We will be talking about burnout. Are you at risk of burnout? No. Okay, moving on. <laughs> burnout, by the way, increases the the odds increase if you feel engaged into your work. If you right. are one of the engaged employees, one in five, so 20% of engaged employees have a risk of burnout. By the way, apparently 70% of employees aren't engaged anyway. Is that what causes the burnout? Yeah. Is the one person is so engaged in everyone else is like, meh. Well, and maybe that if 30% of the employees in the country are engaged, maybe they're carrying a bigger load hmm. than they should. Because, you know, if your coworkers aren't as engaged, then you might feel more of a compelling need to do more, to be more, to stay longer, to make stuff happen. 
Anyway, it's a uh, it's a pretty big deal. So we'll be getting into that today about engagement and also the risk of burnout. Uh, speaking of burnout, DC is uh, it's in a burnout phase. This is really? getting this is getting to a really big level for the president of the United States, where his now his personal attorney has had in another investigation FBI come in mm-hmm. and start. Uh, raiding his office, basically. But some of the documents would be documents that might be tied to other investigations. <laughs> That's enough to make you get burnout. Yeah. Yeah. Or launch missiles at certain countries. Oh, boy, Syria. <laughs> you picked a bad week, Syria. So let's get to the headlines, Terry. What uh, What's going on in D.C.? What should we be paying attention to? In a meeting of military leadership Monday to discuss the serious, ongoing serious situation, President Donald Trump addressed the FBI raid of Michael Cohen's home and office, telling reporters it was, it was a disgraceful situation. He also called special counsel Robert Mueller's team the most conflicted group of people I have ever seen, adding that many people have said you should fire him. He goes, we'll see what happens, he continued. Mueller's not involved in the uh, the search of the office or the home other than oh. he found something and handed it over to the Department of Justice and they are the ones that Yeah, he's the not investigating it. Yeah. He just he I mean that's what you'd have to do if you found something. There's some conflation happening there. Yes. Trump also claimed that this was a witch hunt constantly going on calling the raid an attack on our country what we all st- and what we all stand for. Yeah. Law and order cuz he's the law and order president, right? Well, he's saying, "Hey, other people have done other things, and you, you, we oh, didn't right. investigate Hillary or well, anybody. He went off on Hillary in the emails, too. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Uh, he criticized Attorney General Jeff Sessions in his remarks, saying that no one is looking at the other side, referring to Hillary Clinton's emails and other issues. The search does not appear to be directly related to Mr. Mueller's investigation, but likely resulted from information he had uncovered and gave to prosecutors in New York, the New York Times reports. Wow. Other news, special counsel Robert Mueller is investigating a 150000 donation to the Trump Foundation made by a Ukrainian steel magnate during the, com- the uh, campaign in exchange for a conference talk. The probe appears to be part of Mueller's investigation into foreign funds to the president and his associates leading up to the 2016 election. So during the 2015, when he was, was declared a he candidate, declared, yeah. he then took $150,000 from an oligarch yeah. to do a 20-minute talk at 2 in the morning. Over Skype. But you can go find it. Apparently, you can go find yeah. the talk. So it happened. Yeah. It's just, it seems like... Where's the money from? Maybe that's not where you... You don't collect money from Russia while you're a candidate for president of the United States. Yes. And and then you, they he ran it for some odd reason through his charity, mm-hmm. which the charity has been known to be non charitable, non charitable, or paying off other. I believe a things. guy from the Washington Post won a Pulitzer trying to figure all that wow. out. Well, I mean, again, well, his charities and it's just you know. and what, what I thought he I thought President Trump said that he had not ever dealt with Russia ever. Right, this was Ukraine. Yeah, but... Well, it might have been a Russian steel magnate, but it's different. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's different. Ukraine. Facebook, they're going to be on trial, so to speak, today. It's not really trial. It's, it's, a, pub- just, it's a public hearing. It's a public hearing. The public trust and Facebook plummeting in the wake of privacy scandals with the company's chief executive isn't worried. Mark Zuckerberg said that he has no intention of resigning from his post at Facebook. 
And uh, even in the face of the federal investigation and calls for significant changes to the social media platform's privacy policies. In an interview with The Atlantic, Zuckerberg said that the company has worked on a lot of hard problems over the last 14 years building Facebook. He goes, I'm very confident that we're going to be able to work through this issue or these issues. Zuckerberg announced Monday that Facebook would deploy an election research committee to assess how the platform could be used to manipulate elections and exploit user data. Zuckerberg will testify today before Congress and to address privacy privacy concerns. And he has no friends there because everyone is looking at this as a campaign issue. Well, so they need their commercials. Again, it seems like we're everyone's like mad at Zuckerberg. For things that we all kind of knew they were doing, kind of. Right. So, are we all faking? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's just blind rage. He's Is the it, target right now. And there's, but now some of this has to do with really the fact that Facebook people believe helped get President Trump elected. That's really the linchpin of the anger, yes. Yeah. I mean, they should be mad about the fact that we're getting more ads on Facebook, it feels right. like. Yeah. Quite a bit more. I mean, that's really what I'd be ticked about. <laughs> I love this. Uh, some good news. Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois gave birth to her third child Monday. Oh, great. Becoming the first U.S. senator to give birth while in office. According to the statement, Duckworth is recovering well. Brian, Abigail, and I couldn't be happier to welcome little Mali, Mali, M-A-I-L-E, Mali? M-A-I-L-E. Mali, Malai. Malai Pearl. You don't want the word lie in your name, do you? Malaya. She's the newest addition to our family. She wrote in the statement, as tough as juggling the demands of motherhood and being a senator can be, I'm hardly alone or unique as a working parent of my children. Only make me more committed to doing my job and standing up for hardworking families everywhere. The statement went on. Yeah. Now, she's the uh, former uh, what pilot. I believe she lost her legs in the Iraqi right. war. Yeah. So she's in a, a wheelchair, and this is her third child, sitting senator. So she's making all kinds of firsts. Yeah, this is pretty cool. As this moves forward, and she'll she'll be back soon to do her work as and she continues on as a senator. Mali. Uh, finally, uh, you, you've heard of the wife carrying championships? Have you seen this before? No, but I've, my wife's been carrying me for years. This is this is a little different than that. Uh, with sl- a sliding dive worthy of a rugby try, oh, yeah. as it says, Chris Hepworth flung himself and his partner over the finishing line, become the UK wife carrying champion, <laughs> and now has his eyes set on the world title. The couple beat around 40 pairs over the quarter mile course on Sunday in a race that was marred by the injury of one wife when her husband slipped in the mud and landed on her. The sport is open to any adult couple, married or not, with the wife who required to weigh at least 110 pounds. Wow. On the British course, runners have to tackle hay bale obstacles and are showered with water by spe- uh, spectators. Having set a course record of 1 minute 37 seconds, Hepworth and his partner Tanisha Prince from London plan to take up the chance of becoming or competing in the world finals in Finland. Wow. That's love right there. Wife carrying champions. And Love they carry, to go through that. Like, they carry that sounds the, so unpleasant. The vast majority carry the wife upside down. Yeah, on their back, just, and she's wrapped around their waist, uh-huh. and they just run. Yes, yeah, I mean it's an easier way to carry your wife. I looked at my wife. I go, "How about this for a wife? Let's let's try this. It's a bonding couple. Well, I think, yeah, you could compete together. I mean, it's some people like, no. run marathons mm-hmm. together. Some maybe do a." Triathlon. There's those mud-filled obstacle courses that people run through for fun. For it some seems reason. like it's it would be the wife's idea. Yeah, she'd have to be on board literally. 
actually, I think about that, and it's like <laughs> I would feel no sense of accomplishment from doing something like that. But well, it would be pretty funny. Well, you <laughs> you just read. On, you just read a book while you're on the back. Well, that's true. Well, it's a little bit more involved than that. Turn on some podcasts. What I mean, does she do? Just hold on. She just holds on. And yeah, well, he, so that's. But but he's diving over hay bales, running through water, and so I mean. Do they rotate turns? I no. mean, this is an equal. It's a quarter. World. It's a quarter mile course. Do they have a carry your husband, or is that just a known fact that they're already carrying? Us? I think I think emotionally that that's already happening. So physically, it's the man's job. I just think it should go both ways. Yeah, if we're well, gonna true equality. What do you think, Becca? I think that sounds like. As a team, you know, if you can carry each other, that sounds like a real that, accomplishment. That, now, that's an accomplishment. Right. If she had to run half the race carrying him, hmm. then, by the way, that would give hope to all of the smaller, you know, sized men. It would change the way both of you worked out and trained for it, for sure. Totally. That's a great point. <laughs> there you go. Ah, the insights you don't get on any other show. You can join the Carry Your Partner contest that we'll be starting right here at Brigham Young University. Have fun. It's going to be a good one. Up next, folks, we're going to be talking about burnout and uh, what increases the risk of burnout. Is it just simply being an engaged employee makes you even more likely to burn out? Is that fair? Come on. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. BYU Radio. Talk about good. Welcome back, folks. You know, employee engagement is a major concern for HR leaders around the country. Year after year, these managers and researchers discuss Gallup's shocking statistic that 7 out of 10 U.S. employees report feeling unengaged or disengaged uh, in their workplace. And uh, figuring out how to increase employee engagement has been a burning question for companies and consultants across the board. Here to talk with us today a little bit more about the study and how we can decrease our risk of burnout is Dr. Julia Moeller, who is an assistant professor for educational psychology at the University of Leipzig in Germany. Julia, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Talk about uh, we've we've brought up this idea of engagement quite a bit on the show, um, and it, first of all, I guess it is is it is are, are the numbers from Gallup accurate? Is it really seven out of ten people are are disengaged or less engaged in their workplace? Well, I suppose that depends on how you define engagement, how you measure it. Um, I wouldn't say it's incorrect, but I would also like to point out that we found different numbers in our study. Um, so engagement, since it is a buzzword and many researchers are studying to investigate it, there are different definitions going on, mm. going around. Okay, so, so talk to talk to us about your yeah. How do you different ways? How do you define it? Well, we follow much of we follow a quite known engagement definition by um, Arnold Bakker, who is an, a, a professor in the Netherlands, who is very known in the field of engagement research. And we define engagement as a broad umbrella term that basically summarizes everything that you would find 
important about motivation in the workplace. And so it's an it's a multifaceted construct that um, includes physical aspects, cognitive aspects, and emotional aspects. And to to sum it up in one sentence, it's like a positive, fulfilling work-related state of mind that is characterized by vigor, by dedication, and by absorption. Hmm. So they're motivated and, uh, in those variety of areas, physical, emotional, mental, um, uh, is, is, a pretty, is a pretty good definition of it. What are you learning about engagement? Um, because it seems like being motivated and, and feeling a vigor toward our work and an excitement toward our work, it seems like a positive thing. Um, but uh, are there some risks to engagement? Yes, both. On one hand, engagement is a positive state of mind. It's defined as a positive state of mind. And it's a a combination of everything about motivation that is supposed to be beneficial for work. And um, several studies have shown that engagement is beneficial for desired outcomes, such as work performance and um, business unit performance, but also safe working behavior and client satisfaction. So usually engagement is seen as a very desirable um, state of mind in employees, which is why, why so many people worry about how to boost engagement in employees. But on the other hand, um, there might be such a thing as too much engagement. Hmm. Um, or as Professor Arnold Bucker put it, high engagement is a peak and every peak might need also a valley or a low in order to be in balance. And what I mean is we have seen that in some employees, um, there are very high levels of engagement. They are totally fired up. They are very motivated to perform at their best. But at the same time, they do so at a certain cost. And the longer they are engaged, and the more engaged they are, they might also develop uh, symptoms of stress and even symptoms of burnout. But that doesn't occur in all of the employees. So that goes back to your question, how how many people are engaged? Um, so we found that 41% of all employees in our sample were positively engaged, only engaged without any stress. But also 18.8%, so almost one out of five, had high levels of engagement and high levels of stress and burnout. And those are the people who we worry about because they have high engagement, but we wonder if it's necessarily a positive thing. Interesting. So one out of five uh, people are have high engagement and uh, have burnout. Yes, and or symptoms of burnout. Yeah, and so... Um, that's interesting. Is it, is it more, are these, is it just that they're doing more work and that's what's burning them out? Or is it just that they have like personalities that burn out? Well, we didn't look into personality, um, but usually a lot of the research on, on engagement focuses on resources and demands that people encounter at their workplace. And I think that's interesting because this is uh, what managers might have an influence on. So usually we read that um, high resources that people get at their work in order to perform at their best are positively related to engagement. So the more resources people get or uh, encounter, the more engaged they tend to be. Um, Then on the other hand, there are demands which usually are supposed to relate 
to burnout or stress. Um, but since we found that there is this group of people who have high engagement and high stress and burnout levels, we also looked at the demands and resources they encounter. And we found that these employees that we call engaged exhausted were also quite likely to encounter high demands and high resources in a combination at their work. Hmm. Is it um, is this job specific? Like I look at my job as when I'm on the air, I have I have a lot of um, demand, it feels like. I mean, I feel a lot of stress because you've got to constantly be on and be doing your job. Um, but then so my job feels like that, but then I don't have much to do after my show except prepare for the next show. But I and I can imagine a surgeon would have, uh, you know, if if they were in high demand and even if they had a lot of resources, it would it would feel good. They'd be engaged, except over time it could eventually just burn them out. That sounds plausible. So are you saying that the fact that you get some downtime after your work yeah. helps you dealing with the higher does, demand? Yeah, does the job – I mean, is this job specific? Uh, it seems like surgeons would have a higher incident of burnout anyway just because of uh, their demand and what they're doing versus somebody that's maybe um, doing another job that isn't life or death or another job that isn't as intense. Yeah, I mean, we, we know that um, the levels of burnout and stress – tend to differ between industries and jobs. So, for instance, teachers and people working in certain um, service jobs and, for instance, hospitals and nurses, they are more likely than others to perceive or experience symptoms of burnout. Um, I can't tell you whether there are differences between people in terms of being at the same time engaged exhausted, I, w- I w- would assume so. And I think you have raised an important question, which is um, maybe it's not the high demands. Maybe it's really a question whether or not you can get a balance and a recovery after encountering those demands that makes a difference between being positively engaged and being engaged with increasing levels of stress and burnout. Yeah. I mean, it's and I guess, too, it's, it, it's so... Fickle because it also has to do with how you handle stress, how you process, how you take your downtime, um, and so what. What are you learning that managers can do, Julia? What what? How can managers improve um, the engagement, but also uh, not overdrive the burnout? That is a very interesting question, and we are just at the beginning of understanding that. I think our uh, findings relating to the demand and resources give a good hint um, because I think it's really key to understand that the higher the demand, the higher is the likelihood of an employee to get stressed and eventually also experience exhaustion and other symptoms of burnout, no matter how engaged and passionate they are about their work. And I think that's often overlooked. We often think, um, we don't have to worry about people who are highly engaged and who people who say about people who say they love their job. And often they have so many positive emotions that they don't even worry about this themselves. Um, but the higher the demands and the higher, for instance, the workload or the closer a deadline, the more work you put into your uh, the more time you put into your work, the 
the more you also need some downtime, some recovery, um, some sleep, and maybe even some time with your family and friends to make up for all the time that you're absent at work, you know. So I think it's really this balance, and I think it would often help if managers kept in mind how high the demands are currently at their workplaces for their employees, and if they try to make up for their demands in uh, in terms of increasing the resources. Um, because we usually think about demand and resources as something that should be in balance. And if the demands are really high because there's a deadline coming up and everyone is working like crazy, then it might be a good idea to make sure that at least they get something to eat over lunch and don't have to, you know, run out and run back or even stop eating over work. But um, having a manager who has these demands in mind and tries to meet them with increasing resources, I think, would help a lot. Absolutely. That's like a... um... As I look at it, but I guess that's the the key to management is you'd have to be able to to have clear communication and understanding of what's really going on with the team and every team. I mean, I'm right now here in the United States, we have tax day coming up in about a week yeah. or less. And so I imagine every accountant right now and their teams have major demands on them. Um, and if I were a manager of accountants, I'd probably be doing everything I could to get as many resources to them. And then, too, I guess, even before the season for taxes start, build the resources, give them free time, off time, do whatever you can to to take care of them. But it's almost like we don't sometimes work that way in our organizations because, you know, we have other systems that are going on where – you know, people are only allowed so much vacation time. People are only allowed – you know, you've got to be here 9 to 5. Your schedule's set. And but it may not always flow with you know the way your industry works. Yes, that's right. There are also lots of jobs which require people to just put in extra work, or you work on evenings, you work um, on the weekends. Like researchers often work a lot and don't really necessarily monitor the time right. they put in. Um, but they also get a lot of freedom in deciding where to work and when to work so that they can at least get the workload in agreement with other aspects of their life. And I think that's that's also an upcoming debate. I have seen recently lots of um, newspaper articles talking about home office and whether or not people should at all be requested to come to work in an office if the work doesn't require it because people are starting to... um, figure out that they have more resources at at home and um, don't lose so much time on the way of getting to work. So there are different new strategies being discussed that people hope would help them getting more resources yeah. or making up for the demands that they encounter at work. And I think that's an interesting development. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Julia Muller, thank you so much for this insight. It really, I think it, it, it opens a lot of uh, questions, I think, for all of us of how we manage our own demands, how we look at our own resources, 
and uh, and how we make it through this and stay engaged, but not to the point of burnout. Remember, Dr. Julia Muller is an assistant professor for educational psychology at the University of Leipzig in Germany, and uh, she's um, doing what she can to make our lives a little bit easier, I think, by understanding burnout. We'll continue this uh, lesson and, and uh, do a little coaching straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. You know, when you think of burnout, um, you know, sometimes you think of all these people that that uh, aren't motivated. They don't have a purpose in life. They, But when you listen to uh, Julia's numbers about the fact that burnout comes to the people that really tend to be most engaged, um, and then they, they don't... They don't take time for themselves. And I think a lot of us are – we're so driven. We so live in this world where we need to get the right grades. We need to – everything's pressure and we want to be the best. And and we, we even feel compelled to be the best because, you know, God would want it that way. He'd want us to be our best self. But God doesn't want you to be burnt out. <laughs> He doesn't want you to do more than you can do, does he? Is that how this works? Is no, no, you got to no, sorry. Actually, he wants you just to be just a big mushy ball of nothing. That's how God works. Um God wants you to be in tune and in a connection with him. So to me, the what uh what maybe we need to figure out with each of our lives is how do we do some of this? For example, how do I stay uh, focused and connected to my purpose in life while simultaneously um, growing and, and knowing who I am and um, stretching myself and, and pushing myself harder to do more and to be more? How do I do all of that and not get burnt out? It, uh, it's, I, I guess the key to some of this is going to be, um, I guess, at some point in our lives, Knowing what matters to us, knowing what our yeses are, knowing what we need to do, what we need to work on, what we need to be. Um, So it's going to take a little bit of work. Uh, Interesting, some research on happiness shows that 48% of Americans consider themselves happy, right? And um, which doesn't seem that, I mean, I guess that's high, but 33% of Americans say they're very happy with their jobs. By the way, the happiest careers happen to be clergy, firefighters, and reservation agents, which to me is what? But when you look at clergy and firefighters and I guess reservation agents, they're outwardly focused. They're serving others. They're helping people uh, take care of and, and do things. They're 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 outwardly focused. They probably also, um, I know, for example, with firefighters, they spend only about 1% or 2% of their time actually fighting a fire. The other 98% of their time, they are probably preparing, working, exercising, anticipating, rejuvenating, getting healthy, you know, drilling, practicing, doing things like that. So I think each and every one of us could probably find a way to, 
take better care of our lives if we maybe thought a little bit more like a clergy member who's always looking to the bigger picture of God, or a firefighter who's always trying to prepare so that they can handle the fire. Some of us, though, don't have time to prepare for the fires because we're too busy fighting fires. And um, if you keep fighting the fires and never prepare for the fires, then eventually you'd eventually have, I'm betting, a lot of fires to handle, right? Maybe 60% of your time would actually be in firefighting instead of fire prevention. So look at your own balance in your own life. What percentage of your day is actually spent in true recreation, where you actually are recreating yourself, your sense of, uh, you know, your sense of health, your sleep, by the way, your restfulness, your mindfulness, your meditation. Do we have time for any of this? You know, some of us have got to work, and then we work. And again, you're going to pay one way or another here. You're going to eventually have to pay. It's sad, but it's uh, it's it's going to have to happen. There's a great um, definition by Dr. Sean Acor, who wrote the book on happiness, um, the happiness advantage. He, the 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 definition of happiness is the most accurate term for happiness is one that Aristotle used. It's eudaimonia, which translates not directly to happiness but to human flourishing. So what if we blew up the idea that we as humans need to go for happiness, but instead we chose to just go for flourishing? Do you feel like at work you're flourishing? Or are you dying? Are you just, you know, imploding? And what can you do in your workplace to feel a more of a sense of flourishing? Probably would have to involve four or five areas at least. Physically, what can you do to stay on top of your game physically? Socially, how are your relationships at work? Emotionally, how do you feel about yourself in the work you're doing, your vision, your purpose, your passion? How do you feel about that? Uh, financially, is it cutting it for you? Is it is it paying off? Um, and um, professionally, are you being stretched? Are you growing? Are you developing? Are you being able to take this uh, this job to another level and be able to, to truly be who you need to be. So that's just simply asking yourself physically, socially, emotionally, financially, um, and kind of I call it spiritually, are you connected to what you're doing in a way that it actually creates flourishing for yourself? And if it doesn't, hey, that's normal. That's normal, right? But the the dilemma is at some point, normal might lead to burnout. Only 40, in her research, only 40%, 41% of the people she studied are engaged. Uh, according to the Gallup organization, it's uh, only 30% of the people that the Gallup organization studied are engaged. But of those that are engaged, she found that 20% of those are engaged to the point of burnout. So you can have too much of a good thing, right? And uh, we, we probably need to watch out for that. Some other things I've realized and learned just in my own life um, is is to make sure that I actually am using the strengths that I bring to the table. Um, there's certain things I don't bring to my job that it's not me, it's not my gift, it's not my strength. And if I spend all day doing my job and then trying to get better at the things I'm not good at, 
um, instead of being able to magnify the top four or five, six things that I do bring to the game, then we might actually find ourselves burning out even faster. Instead of using a strength that would rejuvenate us and actually feel us, make us feel passionate about what we do, we, a lot of us in our jobs might be spending a lot of time making up for our, our errors, making up for the things we're not as good at. And I wonder if that just might be the selection of our job. Maybe we aren't in the right job if we have to spend so much time getting so much better at it that you know we're almost running against the grain. I would love to see some research done on how people choose their jobs and if that impacts whether they are happy about it, whether they are feeling burnout. When I'm doing what I am uniquely qualified and gifted, not professionally skilled at because I've gone to school to learn it, but things that I am uniquely gifted at, I feel more passion than when I have to do things that I am not kind of inherently gifted at doing. And by the way, the same I found is true in my own parenting. It doesn't mean I won't need to learn stuff. I totally will. But there's also certain times in my parenting where I am actually using my God-given gifts, my God-given talents, and I bring those talents to that parenting moment, and it, it creates a complete new dynamic in my world with my children, right? I might not be the greatest at making dinner, so I'll go learn how to cook, but I will make dinner fun <laughs> for everyone, okay? So we'll have a fun dinner because that's kind of my unique gift, and I guess I could improve my cooking, but I could spend hours and hours improving how I cook, and it won't necessarily make me that much happier. Or I could also spend hours and hours at making it more fun and dynamic and exciting and interesting, and that actually does make it seem like less work. So one of the rules I guess I'd give all of us is let's figure out what our unique strengths are and our gifts are. I've talked about it on the show many times. There's a wonderful website. Go to AuthenticHappiness.org which is a, a it's Penn State University, and you can go on their website, AuthenticHappiness.org, take a test called the VIA test. It's the Character Strengths Test, and it will help you identify from number one to number 24 what your top 24 character strengths are. And hands down, I'm happiest when I'm living my top strengths, period. And by the way, my weakness, my weakest areas... I actually just use my strengths to mitigate those other areas that I'm not so good at. I use my creativity, my humor, my fun, my spirituality. I use my social intelligence as ways to mitigate the fact that uh, I don't have other strengths. And the research hands down shows that's what drives happiness. 93% of people that are happiest are happiest when they use their strengths 10 hours a week. And only one in four adults actually do so. So it's worth looking into, folks. It's worth checking out. So go to AuthenticHappiness.org to to get into that. Uh, Anyway, fun stuff. Interesting. We're all here to learn, doing what we can to make life a little bit better by our strengths and uh, by our engagement. This is The Matt Townsend Show. So we all need to belong, right? We want to feel like we're connected and to the world and that we belong and we are we 
are loved, right, by other people. And so Dr. Brian Willoughby, who is a regular on the show and associate professor here at the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University, he was on the show a while ago talking about this need to belong. And we wanted to revisit it to give us all some more tools in how to manage our need to belong and our our marriages and the love we have with our significant other. So I asked him if it's normal to be in love with a person but not to like them in the moment. It's something when I when I teach my marriage classes, I've got a couple of mottos that I drill into their brains from the first day yeah. onward. And this is one of them. It's just because I love you forever doesn't mean I'm going to like you every day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's normal. That is. I can love yeah. you forever and be committed to being yeah. in, but I may not like you right now. Right. And it, it captures the day-to-day reality of real relationships that they're even in the best most romantic storybook relationships, there are days where you're going to look at your spouse and say, I don't like you. You right drive now. me crazy. You drive me crazy. And it's going to go the other way too. Yeah. Um, but we know there's there's lots of great research out there now um, that shows that relationships fluctuate up and down and, and every relationship has downs and then they tend to get better and then they stay pretty average for a while mm-hmm. and then you'll have a couple weeks that are awesome and that's that's just the reality of relationships. So but what if if every human has a basic need to belong, mm-hmm. then how do they handle the idea that it's going to fluctuate and go up and down? Mm-hmm. Unless, like you said earlier, that they know you're committed. So somehow you have to emphasize you're committed. Right. And get them to believe that. Yeah. There's got to be things you do in your relationship that remind you of that commitment. You know, we have basic things like anniversaries Mm -hmm. and and, and other things like that. But it's got to be more regular. There's got to be little moments on a regular basis, you know, whether it's little words like I love you or other things that just show that person I'm committed to you and just to you. And daily, regularly. Yeah, regularly. Because yes. if they don't see the commitment, then when times get tough, they start to drift like, uh. Right, exactly. And then that creates anxiety and then maybe a fight or flight moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, then eventually over time, if if we don't have that, the negative stuff continues to brew and build. Mm-hmm. And, and then I start having doubts. Yeah. Are you actually there for me? And then we actually just look for evidence that proves you're not. Right. Because you, mm-hmm. you look, you're going with your family here. Yep. And it You're becomes that, this. that cycle, that self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, the, the fancy word we use for that is negative sentiment override. That's uh, our ooh. academic term, N- right? Neg- negative negative sentiment oh, oh, override. But basically what that means is that over time, if we have all these negative things that happen, I start interpreting everything that you do yeah. as a negative. In, in fact, just in my class last week, we were talking about this. And I give the example of, of knocking a water glass over at a dinner table. And, you know, just complete accident. My spouse knocks it over. But if I have that, I might look at that and say, well, great. Well, you're not going to clean that up because you never do anything. I'm going to have to do it. Here we go again. (laughs) Ruin another dinner. Ruin another dinner. You never knock over the glass when you make the dinner, only when I make the dinner. Exactly. And then that sort of little thing can can ruin a relationship. Oh, my heavens. And that's that's a natural tendency once you're kind of – Mm-hmm. in this fight-or-flight spiral. Yeah, exactly. The fearful, yep. which it all goes back to just wanting to belong. Right. But So this this whole thing could be cast. The die could be set from my parents. Mm-hmm. Yes, because that was the first relationship for most people where I learned, can I trust people that I love? Hmm. You know, were my parents, these these caregivers for me, were they there for me when I was crying? And this is, a, if you go back to the attachment stuff, yeah. this is very, very early on. But predict because I need to know that predictably my closest relationships 
are there for me, allow right. me to grow, mm-hmm. and I can go back to. Yeah, and and so I, I'm either going to learn that or I'm going to learn that, hey, the people that you're supposed to count on, you can't trust. And mm-hmm. then I'm going to just have to rely on myself. Or maybe it's inconsistent, and sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And so then what I'm going to learn is I'm going to push and push and push and yeah. hope that one of these times you reciprocate. And and some then get too clingy because mm-hmm. they're afraid of you leaving them. Yep. Some get kind of withdrawing and they just dismiss you. They just... They just are always mm-hmm. disconnected from you. Yes. Yeah. So one's aggressive, one's kind of detached. Yes. Or you could do a mix of all of them. Yep. Or you could be a little bit of all. <laughs> just enjoy all of them. <laughs> yeah. If you're going to use them, I like to use all of them. Yeah. Um, that's all, what you're telling me, though. That's all natural relationship stuff. These yeah. are natural relationship issues. So if somebody's doing that dance where they can't tell if their partner's in or not, mm-hmm. they're probably we could probably just know that somebody needs to know that they belong. Yeah, and that goes back to that open communication is that, you know, whatever partner I'm in, I am, if I'm the partner that's that's fearful that you're not committed to me, you're going to leave, or if I'm the partner that tends to withdraw and, 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 and disengage a little bit, I have to be open with my partner and, and talk about those fears and anxieties. And then my partner has to be understanding hmm. that I'm not perfect. You know, if I'm with someone that tends to withdraw, I have to be willing to say, okay, that's who they are, and they might not want to talk right now, but it's something we're working on together and individually. Yeah. It's such a powerful thing. And and yet, because it really it seems like it's, the, it's kind of the energizer behind a lot of our conflict, a lot of the divorce. Yes. Yes. The, that, that feeling of loneliness um, that sets in, um, again, with couples that become really unhealthy in their patterns, whether it's communication, whether it's conflict, eventually there becomes that that sense of loneliness. Yeah, I'm with that person. Yeah. We, we have this house together. We have these kids together maybe. But I don't feel like I'm connected. I've lost that. And it feels really, really lonely. Mm. And then there's that desire to, I need to go find that somewhere else, which is where a lot of affairs come from. Um, or just, I need to get away from this because it's yeah. oppressive for me. Yeah. And I mean, I know guys that just get on these, you know, these cycling teams mm-hmm. and they just go cycle yeah. 30 miles a night yep. Yep. just because they don't have to think about it. Yeah, then. I can disappear into a hobby. I can disappear into video games. I mm. can disappear into work. You know, whatever it is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get somewhere else because I don't have to focus on this loneliness, this this emptiness. So if that's if that's the case, we we need to talk more about it. We need to maybe get more real about it. I mean, is there research we should read? Is there are there places? Does on Relate Institute are are there tools for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've actually done several blog posts about belonging and attachment and some of the latest research. You know, one of the things we're trying to do with that is is take the latest research studies that no one will read because they're boring. Right, they'll put you to sleep. Yeah, um, and translate them and do these nice little succinct blog posts. Like, hey, here here is what if you want to know what the latest research is on research. Here's what it is. And we just throw it up there for anyone that wants to read it. That's great. Um, but then we do have the assessment tools as well that, that you can take if you're worried about your relationship or you just want to know what your relationship is like. Um, we have attachment measures in Relate, and so that's part of the assessment, and so you can take it. And then in part of your report, it'll say, here's kind of what your attachment is looking like. Here's what your partner is, mm. and here's how you go together. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And you don't have to be hopeless because right. if you're at an extreme level of this, mm-hmm. there's hope. Oh, yeah. Because – You've been doing a battle for 20-something years without ever knowing what the cause was. Right. Now you're now – you can start addressing the cause. Yeah. No, knowledge is always power in relationships. So the first step is just understanding what's going on and then it's just trying to work through it day by day and, and, and trying to move forward and having goals and being okay with setbacks. Mm-hmm. And, and, and again, growing together. 
with your partner. That's yeah. the biggest thing in marriage. What if it's just too – like what if you sense your partner has too big of a need? It's mm-hmm. still an attachment issue, but they're just – they're an aggressive attacher that mm-hmm. needs – they always need you. It's constantly needing you. Right. It's the same problem. Mm-hmm. It's just – it's just the extreme form. Right. Then you should have done a better job dating. Yeah. <laughs> you should have picked a <laughs> you better. Should have picked better. Right. But, I, you know, if you've got someone like that, you can you can be a facilitator then. And it, you, you still want to do all these things we're talking about and do things together. But maybe you have a, a partner that does still need a lot of peer interactions. And mm-hmm. so maybe part of my job is, hey, I'm going to set up a friend's night for you once yeah. a week. You know, because I know that's something that you need and I'm going to be I'm not going to nag about it. I'm not going to, you know, but it's going to be something we plan together. Instead of you just telling me you're disappearing and I'm not involved, I'm going to help facilitate it a little bit. And and maybe I'll even be a part of it every once in a while. Um, And so it still becomes something we're doing together. It's still a joint goal we're working on. But now we can help you. You know, if 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 you're putting everything on me, Mm -hmm. I can share the wealth. Yeah, share it a bit. Oh, man, Brian, it's good stuff. I mean, it really, and again, to just think that it's pretty normal. Yeah. And the answers just end up being communication right. and be real about what's going on. Yeah. All of us have felt lonely. Oh, yeah. Even, even again, in the best families and the best relationships, everyone has those moments where they feel kind of alone, and that's perfectly normal. That uh, was Dr. Brian Willoughby an associate professor in the School of Family Life right here at Brigham Young University, helping us understand uh, the need to belong and and how we actually help and facilitate that for one another. Um, and by the way, it's not even just person-to-person, right? It's also uh, our animals. Um, why I bring that up, it happens to be uh, celebrate your dog, love your dog day today. So of, of all the things you need to make sure, it's, it's National Hug Your Dog Day. Go give your dog some love. Give it a little sugar, uh, puppy sugar love, and, um, and, and show your dog that you really care about him. That's another way to feel like you belong because the neatest thing about an animal is whenever you come home, they are the only ones that seem glad to see you some days, if you know what I mean. How come they're the only one that runs to the door and cares? Anyway, animals, uh, another great way to uh, enjoy life. Doing what we can on the show to give you the tools, the information, the insight you need to uh, feel like you belong and to, to live a healthier, happier life.